You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Hello? Hello? Who is this? Don't need your name, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You make popcorn? Hold on, getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? This is some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Sydney, remember me? What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Don't you know history repeats itself? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We're going to teach you heathens about hell and the dangers of communism. Join the sleaze. <laughs> <laughs> we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patient subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for uh, almost... Uh, whatever four year we have been doing for four years almost yeah. we're, we're about to hit our fifth year of this bonus episodes so yeah so Holy. if you haven't made the jump yet there are over 100 bonus episodes as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films uh over at patreon.com slash these podcast available um and speaking of which we did have a couple of people make the jump this week so we're gonna give them their shit out here we have uh joseph we have Hunter Biden's owl hallucination. <laughs> um, Welcome aboard. We have uh, Jim Jam, who signed up at uh, at the annual tier. So thanks so much to uh, Jim Jam. Uh, we have uh, Henry Ermer. We have Brian Roethlisberger. Uh, we have Logan Kirk. And we have Jeremy KO. So thanks so much to you guys for uh, signing up. Hope you're enjoying all of those bonus episodes. Yeah. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is um, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know that you are, I see the stats. I see you right now listening on Apple Podcasts. Scroll down to the very bottom while you're listening to this and give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks over at iTunes and find new listeners. Um, and that's the, what's the last plug merch. If you guys like the poster art that, uh, local horror artist, Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that put on basically anything that you want a hoodie, a shirt, a notebook, a pillow, a whatever you can think of. You can probably get something with the logo on it. Uh, you can find that link in the description as well as at sleezoidspodcast.com. All right. Welcome back to another week, folks. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis. And joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks, the free listeners, would have heard from us. And we would have been doing a gargantuan one. The best genre movies of 2021. Jamie and I counted down both our honorable mentions for the year as well as our top tens going back and forth. And that episode was uh, three hours and 40 (laughs) minutes long. I hope you guys made it. It was a big listen. We definitely struggled a bit near the end there. Um, But hey, (laughs) 
there was uh, there was a lot of great movies. And the reason that episode was so long is because we couldn't shut up about honorable mentions. And that's you know, that's usually the section where we are naming some of the most underseen films of that given year. So yeah. let's uh, get your watch you know, list out and start adding. That's what that yeah, section is. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, that was over on the main feed for all the free listeners. Hope you guys have already heard it. But if not, Jamie and I's best genre movies of 2021. We put it to bed. Go check it out. Uh, and then last week we mo- we went back to regular scheduled programming with the first official episode of the new year, which was a patron voted episode, which I'm sure most of you know by now. But the Patreon subscribers uh, get to uh, vote on an episode that comes out once every other month where they nominate the double feature and then they vote on it and we do whatever movies you guys want us to cover. And that episode was on uh, the Yakuza from 1974 directed by Sidney Pollack and written by Paul Schrader and his brother and extreme prejudice 1987 directed by uh, Walter Hill. Uh, that episode was nominated by patron Christian and it was a really fun, uh, chat to, to have, uh, which was basically, uh, <laughs> very much a dude's rock, uh, hours oh, of, yeah. uh, friendship and honor and codes and lots and lots of violence and how all of that gets physically expressed in one you get kind of like a uh, a yakuza film slash american thriller and then the other one you get just a really really bleak and brutal western which is essentially walter hill trying to do sam peck and paws the wild bunch so if that interests you at all patreon.com slash lizoids podcast that was last week's bonus episode but uh moving on to this week this is the uh, the rare guestless episode. Just the OG mm. boys on the main feed. Uh, we got no one joining us this week, and that's because we knew this episode was going to be long, regardless <laughs> of if we had uh, someone on it or not. Yeah. So we thought that uh, we would just tackle it ourselves, which we sometimes do when we do big triple feature episodes like what we're going to be doing today. And that is because uh, just yesterday. I'm hoping because we are recording this a little bit before it's happened. Uh, But just yesterday, a brand new Scream movie should have opened in theaters. Scream 5, the first one not directed by Wes Craven. Um, And it was really good, right? Yeah, I, I, I hope it is the first one without Craven. So I'm a little concerned about that. But yeah, it did make sense uh, and gives us a great excuse to go back and talk about Craven, someone that we've talked about a couple times on this show, but we've been saving this because we we kind of knew eventually this was probably going to come back at some point. Uh, so it makes sense. Scream is coming back. People are going to be talking about it. A lot of the younger viewers are going to be going back to the 90s. Yeah, and which is uh, cool. we thought it would be a great time to do it ourselves and talk. One, Scream from 1996, the follow-up, really, really hasty follow-up, Scream 2, <laughs> 1997, actually came out less than a year after the first one. Wow. I can believe it. Um, and Scream 3 from the year 2000, all directed by Wes Craven, all written by Kevin Williamson, except for sort of the third one, which we'll get into some oh, of the specifics of. Well, it has an official screenwriter who is a different screenwriter, but Williamson did develop like a 30 page treatment or something. So a lot of it is still Williamson. Um, So, yeah, we're going to be this week breaking down the uh, slasher uh, uh, sort of rejuvenating uh, box office smashes uh, in the late 90s, the Scream films. Um, 
And yeah, I'm very excited to talk about them because Scream, I don't know about your experience, Jamie, but I think we're at the right age where Scream was kind of like, for me, it was kind of like a gateway movie a little bit. Scream was one of the first uh, sort of bigger horror movies that I watched. And when I watched it, uh, sort of similar to our best genre movies of 2021. I took the the pen and paper out, man. I was like, what are these movies they're talking about? <laughs> yeah, it, I would say Scream is probably my, one of my formative horror movie, uh, horror movies, just because I think it was one of the first that I kind of snuck at, you know, a sleepover that I wasn't supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, definitely I wasn't supposed a to be huge video era release. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also a, a a movie that was constantly on television. So I might've even watched the like cable censored version of it before I actually got mm. to watch the, the, the big gory version of it. So, um, yeah, this, this was one of my first slashers that I saw, which is interesting just because, you know, it has the, uh, satirical elements. So it, it's, yes. it's kind of interesting for us to, for this to be formative when it's directly referencing so many other films that we wouldn't have even really known about, maybe besides reputation at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I just, I find that interesting that it's something that we started satirically rather than like a, a an actual sincere slasher. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, for me, it was just one of the first movies where I actually recognized that there was like people making the film and that they were talking about other films and that there was, you know, directing happening. And I was like, so for, for me, it was a really, really big, uh, big deal, which is why I'm excited that we're finally covering it on the show. But yeah, that being said, we probably should just get right into it for most people who have been listening for a while. They probably heard us do triple feature episodes. They kind of know how it works. Um, most of the time we kind of, uh, every so often we kind of collapse all of the different segments together. I think for this one, we are going to give scream its own segment just because it is, uh, scream it's huge it's one of the biggest horror films of the 90s in general so I think it gets yeah. it deserves its own segment but then we're gonna break into the second segment where we usually cover one film and we're gonna talk scream two and three kind of together because by the time we're talking about those you guys will definitely already have an idea of the uh, the, the the formula and the beats and you know we don't yeah. we don't need to go through all of that a, a second time for those so, and at the yeah. very least that they do they do repeat a formula throughout which is on purpose um, but yeah we don't want to yeah. just keep reading reiterating that for you guys to get a little yeah get a little dull yeah we, we don't need to talk about the basic premise like three times over again we'll just do yeah. it once <laughs> someone's trying yeah. to kill sydney <laughs> yeah that's right um but yeah so let's uh let's jump into it here let's talk about scream who do we make the rules he just kills by them Answer the phone. Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. Everybody's a suspect! Not scared, are you? Squeak. All right, we are talking Scream, the 1996 American uh, satirical slasher film directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. The film uh, stars a huge cast of uh, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, Jamie Kennedy. 
Uh, Lee Schreiber even uh, very briefly makes an appearance <laughs> that becomes a little bit bigger of an appearance in the sequels. Uh, Drew Barrymore very famously in the opening sequence of of this film. Uh, so she was this supposed was a to be Sid, right? Like originally teen cast. I I actually read that Drew Barrymore always wanted to be the opening uh, scene. Uh, and because she loved the idea of being a new generation's like a Janet Lee psycho kind of deal. Right. Um, so again, there's kind of conflicting stories on it on whether Drew Barrymore was courting like the lead role, but I actually heard just by watching interviews with Craven, uh, Craven was saying that Drew Barrymore was attached even before he was attached because she loved the idea of being the opening killed in the opening scene. Yeah, I heard <laughs> and that, that having such a huge shocking impact. Yeah, I heard that Wes actually wasn't even really that interested until he heard about Barrymore just because he felt I think that was kind of the initial thought of him saying like, oh, I could kind of spin this on its head and and make it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it really turns into the, the satirical elements. But I think that was probably the initial thought he had when he saw Drew Barrymore wanted to be killed on camera. <laughs> he was like, oh, wow, I can kind of subvert that a little bit. So that was his yeah, initial I mean, it interest. Was, it, it, it was definitely uh, a, a really big screenplay around the time that it was being shopped by Kevin Williamson. It was originally developed under the title Scary Movie, right. which I do love because so it has ironic. this very that the, yeah, the eventual parody of it was actually yeah. called that. But I, but I, I love that it was just called that because it has this kind of like generic nostalgic quality to it, definitely. which is, you know, where the it's film was fit. actually born from. Yeah. I do yeah, like, I mean, though, that, like, I hate that it's Weinstein that ended up being the change, but uh, yes. um, I, I will say I think it was a, a good change just because I think leading into the movie as if it's not satirical really helps with those elements because then once you yeah. start diving into it, especially with Kennedy's character where he's, like, giving you the rules and all of that, you start it, – it, it starts to become more obvious what he's doing as the movie goes on, and I think – going along with the ride like that is much more fun than if, because if you took, if you called it scary movie, even without mm-hmm. the, the reference that we have now, which is an outright parody. Um, I think just calling it that you, you would think more like along the lines of space balls or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I think it was a smart idea to make it a more sincere, um, horror title. Uh, and then, and then fall in line with the satirical elements a little later on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that that's the the, the central kind of push and pull of this entire movie is yes, that exactly on one level, this is a satirical film written by Williamson, which was basically just born from, you know, his love of sort of trashy horror slashers as, as a kid and something that he saw that was kind of on its deathbed in the 90s and really wanting to kind of revive it. You know, he loved uh, Halloween. He loved Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street but even like, you know, sort of lesser known ones like prom night or when a stranger calls or right. my bloody Valentine, black Christmas, you know, et cetera, all et cetera. Reference in this. <laughs> yes. All end up referenced, uh, at, at some point or another. Um, and yeah, so you, you, you have on one level, this very sort of self-consciously written film about slasher films and about horror films. But then you have, you bring someone in who is someone who helped sort of godfather in the style of those, literally Wes Craven, who directed the original Nightmare on Elm Street and basically established what these movies are. Um, and you have him direct it like it's a real deal thing. Yeah. Um, and that is what really, really makes 
the film work um, because I think there is a version of this that I hate, which is just oh, someone who made who made this and made it as a parody. And I think even when the screenplay was being shopped around, it was being shopped around and being asked. To, it was being given to like directors like Romero and Raimi and people who passed on it because people were reading it and thinking this is just kind of silly. This is just a parody. This is a comedy. I, this is this is this is not a horror film. And that is kind of Craven's genius was that he saw it. And I think he felt that way about it, too. But then he came back to it with an approach and he said, OK, what if I made this a real deal horror movie, make it dark and wet and brutal, despite the obviously satirical, you know, whodunit genre commentary and affection that's being expressed yeah. um, on, on the page? Yeah, because like one, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but I just think it's a really good example. Uh, it's when it's the garage scene with Rose McGowan mm-hmm. when she's about to be killed in the party. And her dialogue in that scene is nonstop uh, satirical, like slasher killer dialogue. And, and not only up to the point of when she's kind of actively toying with the killer in the garage. But even after she says, like, I'm done, she doesn't say, like, hey, fuck off, I'm done. She says, all right, that's a wrap. You know what I mean? Like, she has yeah. to she yeah. has to still put the film tech, uh, uh, terminology into the scene even after her character is done with that uh, little teasing play that they were doing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in those moments, if I could not help but think, like, if any other person was directing this, that would come off so annoying and cheesy and just bad. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I can't help but think, like, do you th- – and maybe you can clarify it. Uh, was the the writer when he was doing more of these like over the top uh, moments? Do, do you think he had the confidence within Wes, or do you think Wes was more of the molder of making these scenes work a little bit better in general, or was it a fusion I, of the two? I think it's I a fusion tell of the two sometimes. because because I think that Williamson's script is good. Yeah, um, I do but too. I, but I do think that it needed a director to take it to the next level it needed to go. I think that there yeah, are moments in this that wouldn't have worked without someone like Craven behind it. But I also think that Williamson, on some level, had to have known that because when they were shopping it around, they were shopping it around to real deal directors. He okay, was trying yeah. to get Romero to do it. He was trying to get Raimi to do it. Like he was trying to get People one of his horror. horror heroes who knew the tone between horror and comedy, and you know would actually make it a real movie and I so I think that Williamson on some level was smart enough to know that okay cool um but I do think that there are stuff on the page that you read it and you're like I don't know if I read that on the page if that would have worked for me and then (laughs) in the movie it it works like gangbusters and it's like one of those things that it's just it's kind of just like pure magic of combination that that ended up you know being what happened here because Mm -hmm. I'm certain most people have seen Scream but by any chance, if someone who listens to a show called Sleezoids hasn't seen the movie Scream, um, <laughs> the basic premise is that there is a serial murderer wearing a cheap Halloween costume that gets him dubbed the Ghostface Killer, and he is essentially terrorizing the small town of Woodsboro, including a high school girl by the name of Sydney Prescott, played by Ontario Queen uh, Nev Campbell. Oh, I didn't um, even know that actually. I'd- that's, That's awesome. right, baby. I, I I can't remember if it was Guelph, I think, that I read. But yeah, she's from here. Um, and her her uh, immediate uh, friend group, uh, her best friend Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, uh, her boyfriend Billy Loomis, played by Skeet Ulrich, who I'm 100% 
convinced was cast because of how much he looks like Johnny Depp did in Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, a hundred percent. That's the first time I saw him in this movie. I was like Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah, hundred um, percent. There's um, his friend and Tatum's boyfriend Stu, played by Matthew Lillard. God, incredible performance. God Matthew Lillard, the God dude. Uh, so, was, you'll be so excited when you eventually get around to Twin Peaks and you see that Twin Peaks: The Return brought Matthew Lillard uh, oh, yes. back, and he's so fucking good in it. Dude, um, I love Lillard to actor. death. Yeah, he absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, he's he's so good at playing like eccentric kind of strange characters. And I think it was it's it was either um, uh, Anna or Meg that that came onto the show. I think it was one of those two that said that he's got the best tongue acting in the game. <laughs> and I just <laughs> I think that's <laughs> very does. funny uh, because it's true. Like I, I actually recently watched Hackers uh, for the first time in a little while, and he's okay. just so fun in it. He's just so great, and he kind of takes those similar mannerisms that he has into this character Stu. Um, who's essentially playing like a like a suppressed killer in a sense like even at the beginning when you get the introduction to their two characters um uh interacting with everyone uh, in front of the school like Stu is quite obviously just a uh pretty outlandish and crazy person like he's even i love the line for instance that he says like when he's like only a man could do something like that and he almost says it yeah, with, like like like, like someone from like whatever to sternum or whatever yeah and he almost <laughs> says it with like a male pride about it as well it, yes. in, in a sense it's very funny um but yeah I, i'll just go gaga over matthew for too long but he's just yeah fantastic. We'll, we'll definitely come back to him a couple times because oh, he's got yeah. some great moments in this film oh yeah uh but there's their movie dork friend randy played by jamie kennedy there's uh, tatum's brother uh deputy dewey played by dave david arquette who's kind of supposed to be a cross between kind of like a young naive cop but also <laughs> plus kind of like your dumb older brother in one character yeah um i'm trying to play and Hero gail so weathers played by courtney cox who is a news reporter trying to get the the scoop on the murders and make money off of them as well as uh sydney's trauma over uh, her past tragedy as well involving the rape and murder of her mother just just a year earlier. And the thing that was really unique about this film around the time that it came out, and I I could tell that it was what people were freaking out about because I went and read a bunch of old reviews to kind of get an idea of what people were responding to. And the thing that people were responding to the most and wouldn't shut up about was that it was a movie that had characters who were movie nerds in it. These were characters oh, yeah. who had seen the films that they were finding themselves in. They talked about the films. They provided commentary on those films and on itself while going through its own plot. You know, it wasn't and just talking about the rules of surviving horror movies, but it was also like, you know, like the moment when the killer calls Sydney and she says that she doesn't watch horror movies because it's all about some big breasted dumb woman <laughs> who just uh, who who is always running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. She calls it insulting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so it was it, it, it was finding ways to talk about, you know, uh a to make a movie about characters who have actually ingested decades upon decades of 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 genre films which was you know obviously what kind of made the movie translate then over to you know burgeoning film nerds such as ourselves maybe uh <laughs> were like hey film nerds on screen that's kind of cool yeah um and that is definitely the thing that people seem to latch on to the most and made it really really unique and special to people when when they first watched it even though it seems like that quality um, 
seems to have in some ways, uh, I don't want to say dated it, but kind of, um, I think people look back on it now. And even if they really like the movie, they do find like that kind of reference humor oh, I see. is so dominant in culture now at large. Yeah. Now well, here's that. I, I think, I think people look back on this in not necessarily negative way specifically for the film because the film obviously does it well. It's just one of those things where like, I think it does get blamed as being patient zero for, you know, uh, Reddit brain movie watching Yeah, (laughs) because it literally has a a Reddit, a dude who would absolutely be on our movies in the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And what I, yeah, absolutely. Randy definitely would be. Um, (laughs) what I, what I think I like about this though, is that it's never, doing the point and oh i recognize that thing that most of the referential writing is doing nowadays um it's it's not like this fan service shit usually when they bring up a movie it's usually to kind of give this idea of like what a character should maybe do next because they know how to defend themselves now or um one part i love how they incorporated it is actually physically within the film itself which is when they're all watching Halloween and the music from Halloween that they're watching is now being the actual the score, actual for, the score film. for the film. Yeah. As the killer's yeah. walking around the house, like that's the kind of referential shit I think is really intelligent and smart and fun. And, uh, and, and it's worlds better than what we see now, which is just lazy. Oh, these people will recognize this. We'll give them the three second joke or meme that does it. They it clicks off in their brain and then they can move on and it's entertaining or whatever you want to call it. This actually has something to say about all of the things that we know and love and constantly reference. And that's that's the big difference for sure. Yeah, well, because that's just it is I, I think it sometimes does get looked at that as just, you know, starting and popularizing the sort of smart ass yeah. winking meta reference humor. And obviously William's script, you know, is full of references and characters drawing attention to the fact that they've seen movies and that they're in a movie. Mm-hmm. They even talk in, about and even make decisions based on that. But there is a huge difference between the way this has been interpreted and ingested now, which is Haha, I, I got that. Look at that thing. That's a thing that I know. And like, you know, movies now operate almost as a movie trivia IMDb section rather than here is a movie that is about these kinds of people. Here is a movie that where it's, you know, it's built not just into the text, but it's built into the form of the movie. There's thoughtful, intelligent Mm -hmm. deconstruction on display because Craven is really good at what he does. Um, And when he approached it, um, I loved uh, reading, watching interviews with him because, I mean, obviously, I just love him as a filmmaker. He's a very uh, inspiring figure to me just because he's a very soft-spoken kind of Baptist kid who is basically freed from the way that he views it, his own repression via movies. He kind of has a similar backstory to filmmaking as Paul Schrader, which was that, you know, his family didn't let him watch movies. He didn't, he was told that they were basically the work of the devil. Right. Um, and he, he didn't get into watching movies until he was older. And when he did, he basically ran away and he was like, dude, these are fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Peace and, we, out. and we, and we've talked about him before. Like, you know, we, we've talked the Hills have eyes was actually our very first episode. And I chose yep. it because it was one of those movies. I went to the video store and I was intrigued by the poster and I was like, man, I got to watch that at some point. So Craven was a huge gateway for me into film, which was why it was the subject of our first episode and since then we've talked uh we've mentioned last house on the left a couple times and we did cover people under the stairs as well yep um yeah 
he's and, and he through all of his films the thing that's consistent is that he always found ways to do genre exercises that were also commenting on things that he was seeing, whether it was about his religious upbringing and family dynamics being tested through violence, which you literally see in The Hills Have Eyes. Yep. Um, or, you know, his Grindhouse era was definitely very angry and focused on American vulgarity, and then his more expensive 80s and 90s era, you know, he started to get a little bit more playful and stylish and testing out ideas of dreams and reality and you know scary manifestations uh of things like bubbling under the surface of suburbia like that's where you get nightmare on elm street right and in the 90s he got into obviously doing he did actually new nightmare before this which is also another you know piece of full metafiction Meta, even yeah. before he made this um you know it was like literally what if the dreams you know that were conjured up on the screen like nightmare on elm street had a life of their own what if they had an industry around them what if kinda, movies could actually fucking kill you yeah and it kind of <laughs> has um and it's not like I don't, it's not much but scream three out of all of them reminded me most of new nightmare just in the sense that yeah. uh they start to incorporate you know the, the hollywood the machine as process well. yeah. yeah but but that's besides the point we'll get to that but but yeah totally yeah. agree totally agree but yeah like just just <sighs> you know paired with his sort of you know his his upbringing where he was basically told that you know movies were this forbidden thing he went to college he watched his first movie he literally started making pornos first um, <laughs> because it was what just what he could get work doing. Um, and yeah, there's, there's something to him about movies that are just, they were forbidden and which is why he's kind of drawn to these darker, more upsetting stories. These stories that kind of have uh, bad taste to them a little bit. Yeah. And there's something that watching him talk about scream is really fascinating because he basically said that when he first read it, you're right, that he was kind of like, this is good, but I don't know if I'm necessarily, I don't know if I see my angle in it yet. And it took him a while before he figured out his angle and, and he eventually decided on. So what, what got him to commit to it was choosing the angle of that this is obviously Kevin Williamson is someone who's grown up on horror movies and he's written a story about people who grow up on horror movies. He, he knows what he's writing about. And, um, he decided to kind of, you know, be like, well, what if, you know, again, the premise being that someone begins to murder people in this town and in ways that are, you know, uh, of a similar style and genre to the films that they have seen, literally using techniques and situations from the film. And he went, okay, what if that was like translated into stylistically like a, a, a feedback loop is how he describes it. Okay, um, yeah. And it's literally like characters know what they're in. They can sort of anticipate what's coming next, maybe anticipate how to survive. And also this idea of kids sort of perception of violence when it's one, when it's this artificially constructed thing for their entertainment that they're watching versus when you are actually in that thing and it's happening to you. Honestly, he, he beat Michael uh, Haneke to the same idea of essentially funny games, right. which was literally the idea of done a little bit more pretentiously, uh, of, yeah. uh, what if movie characters who experienced movie violence were like actual people that you spent time with? Yeah. And, um, there, and there's also no escape with, uh, funny games. Um, I think, yeah. I think that like Wes <laughs> definitely with this one wanted to, uh, I think give the, the 
the innocent people in in the film a more of a fighting chance. Uh, and I understand it's mm-hmm. a different commentary, I guess, than what they're saying. But I, I do uh, like that it's it's more about like Sid overcoming this past, and especially as the films go on, she just becomes like stronger and stronger. Um, as opposed mm-hmm. to the complete nihilistic view that Haneke does with, with funny games, which I, I both yeah. love, but love both of those movies. But yeah. 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 Well, I, I just know that, you know, it, it really clarified it for me listening to him talk about it because he basically was like the thing that got him to do it was receiving fan letters from kids who loved horror films. And he mm-hmm. said that he had kids telling him that they, they really identified with Nightmare on Elm Street and it really got into their, you know, these these kind of feelings they have about ad- adulthood and, and reality. And he saw this as a gateway to talk about, you know, a new generation of kids who were literally grew up watching these films, were informed by these films and how that might affect their further affect their relationship with reality. So it's like Nightmare on Elm Street. But instead of dreams, it's like literally these kids have just watched movies. Right. Um, And this is a film with characters who have ingested so much make believe violence on screen. And it's basically made for people who have done the same, you know, people sick, (laughs) like us, you know, like us. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And but but I think that how he incorporates that stylistically is the thing that really just makes this film fire on all cylinders and really makes the film, you know, hold up still today which is that this film, this is a film that telegraphs to you everything that it's going to do yeah. with the knowledge that you probably know where it's going on a minute sequence level with its kills, with its plot. Uh, there's literally a line halfway through the film where one character says, the father's a red herring, it's Billy. Yeah. Which is, which is the film, which is literally the film telling you what's coming. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's Randy that says it, who is the film expert. So it's like, if anyone you're going to listen to, it's supposed to be Randy. Uh, and, and I like that Jamie Kennedy plays him like hysterical a little bit. Like he's, he's kind of like yelling in the, in the, uh, the video store, for instance, when he's talking to Lillard and, and saying that he thinks he suspects Billy because look at him. He, he's like, he's the, uh, he's being accused of murder and he's over there flirting in the horror section. Who would do that? That kind of thing. Um, I like mm-hmm. that he plays him a little bit hysterical just because then even though you sh- know that you should be trusting Randy as the film expert and this is the type of movie we're in, there's still a little bit of you that's like, well, you know, maybe that's too obvious. Um, and yeah. so you start to kind of like you just kind of qu- start to question yourself because of Wes Craven's awesome craft. So it's like even though he's telegraphing everything, you're like, well, may- maybe this, maybe that. Randy yeah. uh, is suspecting him too much. So it, it, it's too obvious. And I, I, I really do like that, that he's still able to telegraph everything. And by the time everything is revealed, um, there's still you're, a heavy you're, you're, impact you're, because they've done so yes. many subversive twists by that point. Like they do the they, because of the two killers, for instance, there's a way in which they can constantly subvert your expectations. So it's like, you know, whenever the killer pops up, well, we'll just have Billy pop up directly after. But now, you know, well, yeah, later the, the, on that it was literally Lillard, the so. first the first and most obvious suspect in the film is the person who it is. Exactly. The he's the, he's the guy. They not only that they they do the uh, they they stab uh, Drew Barrymore. You know, leave her body mangled like intestines 
falling out of her stomach. She's yeah. hanging from a tree, whatever. Cut to the next big pop-up scare is Billy coming through the window. You know, so it's yes. just like it's it's such an the obvious mo- the movie is telling you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's telling you it, right it's away. Billy. And um, the, the, the movie screams at you like five times. It's Billy, and yeah. because of the power of the filmmaking itself, there is still you know a constant sense of of doubt and danger um, about it. And I think that that is a big part of it because this is literally a film about overdosing on violence as entertainment. Like these kids right. have watched it a lot. I mean, what is, what is Billy? He, he comes in and relates their relationship through the window. He yeah. said that he was watching the exorcist, which got reminded, me horny and thinking about you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah reminded me of you. I love this analogy though. Cause he starts to say, and, and what was ironic too, when I first watched this movie, I'm almost certain I watched it on a, uh, on cable. So when he had, so you were watching the cut version too. (laughs) So he was saying these things. He's like, it reminded of our relationship because it was on cable. So all the good parts were cut out. Um, and so, and, and you know, he's directly translating it to their sex life as if, because they're only making out and, you know, over the, over the pants They have a PG relationship when he wants to have an R or an N17. Yeah. And one of my favorites is when he's like, we were, we were doing, we were at a 14, a rating on our way to an NC 17. And then like just the way that he uh, kind of directs you with the language, like we were doing 14A stuff on our way to NC-17. There's just such a it's it's corny and cheesy, but it's it's really fun. And um, and it's constant. Like there's dialogue like this throughout the, the movie. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, I just I, that this scene in particular though is very funny. I, them watching two teenagers compare their sex lives to to movie ratings, TV, is just very TV funny. cuts of of horror films. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, stuff. well, because that's just it. This is again, this is not just characters, but a film that it, it knows the patterns, it knows the rhythms, it knows the rules. And the thing that is so exceptional about that is that despite the fact that again, this is it's telling you everything in advance it's taking for you know it's taking at face value that you also know the patterns and rhythms but it's being like what if you did and you had all that information but you still found yourself in like mortal danger anyway because movies just have a raw visceral power to them and there's something i think just that's kind of kind of both scary and sad about you know knowing that something is coming and it's still just hitting as hard anyway, that there's nothing that you can do about it, that the movies Mm -hmm. are going to keep repeating themselves, that horror movies are this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of expectation and delivery. And whether you know that or not, you know, you're getting, you're going to get a blade to the gut, that kind of um, experience. Yeah. And I, I think that that's really the key to the movie that despite all the gleeful misanthropic voyeuristic stylizing that's impeccably done um, by Craven that even if you don't even buy into the movie uh, as a clockwork you know th- buy into the meta aspects it really is just a clockwork piece of suspense machinations as well oh yeah Half the movie so good. is one long horror set piece that took them like 20 days or something to film like it's stupid I mean, the opening um, itself with Barrymore is unreal. Yes. Like I guess one we, of we the ultimate mic drop openings to like 
any film. And it basically says up front exactly what it is. It's for me, it's like 10 of the hardest minutes of the, oh, dude, of, it's a, nuts. of a horror movie ever. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. It's, it's one of the, my think one of my favorite openings of all time, not even just in the horror genre. I just think it's mm-hmm. so to the point and so perfect and sets the tone so well. And, and the writing itself is so much fun. I mean, like Barrymore is great. She's just a natural talent. Uh, um, and to have someone that's, you know, at her status be so brutally murdered in the first 10 minutes of your movie is a very ballsy thing to do and, and um, very impactful. And just it also I think I think I read that they did it in a sense, too, so that people kind of had this mindset that anyone was able to die in this movie. Like if we're going to kill off Drew Barrymore, right. <laughs> we could definitely kill off uh, Jamie Kennedy or whoever else. So um, that I that I really liked about it. But just the the, the aspect in general of using all these different uh, uh, references for horror movies, like uh, When a Stranger Calls, for instance, like The Calling of the Phone. Mm-hmm. You could also, I guess, argue like Black Christmas has some phone call stuff in there too. Uh, mm-hmm. um, there's there's elements of just that kind of classic stalker slasher thing. I'm not sure if this is the first movie that did it, but I love the the line of when she's on the phone and and he says something like, oh, I love your blonde hair, which is something he could only say if he was looking directly at her. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I think I think I, I think he says I want to or uh, he wants to know her name and she says why. And he says, I want to know who I'm looking at. Right. And right. And then she um, she goes, what? And he says, I want to know who I'm talking to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So creepy, like the little sort of like wordplay and stuff that they're doing throughout it. And also just a beautifully anamorphically shot. Oh, yeah. Like the widescreen frames, the steady cam camera moves throughout the house, the the building of tension, like slow details, like the sudden cut to outside the house where you uh, you get the sound of the wooden tree sing swing set rocking back and forth. I love which you will find out later why it's happening. I love how open concept the houses too and there's a ton of windows just because the moment that she gets the phone call and it starts to get a little sinister your brain automatically starts going to the background right he's obviously watching her something has to be going on someone's around the house whatever so I like that Mm. a lot of the shots are just her constantly moving throughout this home with a lot of empty space and eventually they start using it by having the killer uh physically move very fast which i also really like throughout this movie the killer isn't doing that like stoic very like he's not a juggernaut he's not just like walking around and taking people out this guy is actively sprinting at people and falling over things at times and even getting stuff (laughs) thrown at him he actually takes quite a bit of damage which i also really enjoy uh kind of adds to the satirical elements a little bit but there is a lot of creep factor in just watching the background and you'll see his you know his his black ghostly appearance just kind of go really fast across the screen and you just know something's Mm -hmm. going to happen because he's also the type of killer that isn't uh except for maybe near the end of the third one um He's the type of killer that if he's in your presence, you're dead. Like it's not that he yeah. has a real danger to to him when Ghosty's on screen. Um, whereas some you could feel like there's there maybe there, there's an escape that's possible. Besides uh, besides Sydney, you really don't feel like anyone's going to get out of any situation that he's involved in. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of really good aspects. Yeah, to this yeah. opening well, scene. And, and- yeah, the, the opening scene in particular is just really, really 
strong. Um, you know, like there, there's creepy little details like we were just talking about, like some of the wordplay details. But then, you know, when he really turns on her and like at first they're just talking about kind of like scary movies and they're talking, you know, he's he's kind of flirting with her a little bit. And, yeah. you know, she's kind of like love his voice, too. <laughs> yeah, his voice, too. Yeah. Played by um, what's his what's his name? I have it written here. Roger. Something um, like Rod Roger Jackson, who yeah. played the actor and the voice throughout most of the films. Um and uh, apparently he basically never met the rest of the cast because Craven <laughs> didn't didn't want them like having a relationship with him. He wanted them to just be this creepy disembodied thing that they were hearing. Oh, that's cool. Um, and uh, yeah, he actually was talking to them on the phones during all of the scenes, which is not something they always do. A lot of the time they'll just like have them do the lines into the phone. Right. Um, right. But he actually wanted the legitimate reaction to the thing he says, like when he all of a sudden is like, hang up on me again and I'll gut you like a fish. Or yeah. Because he says like he yeah. wanted that those like really genuine reactions to moments like that or the I want to see what your insides look like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I love like his and, voice is cool because he has this way of being kind of composed and sounding normal in a way and, and kind of honestly cool. Like I, I like his, <laughs> his, his more normal down voice and the way that he uses kind of like this, uh, I don't know, like rasp as he starts to freak out. Like when he goes from zero yeah. to 100, when, it's when so he goes good. unhinged. Yeah. yeah. It's so creepy. And, and, um, and I do kind of believe like, I like his voice because it works with Barrymore at first when they are doing the flirting thing, it kind of works. He's got that creepy sinister vibe to him, but you could tell, you could kind of see why Barrymore would be like, Oh, okay. Who's this guy? Um, Mm-hmm. And then it just gets <laughs> completely animalistic and crazy. But uh, yeah, just a lot of really good design work on Ghostface himself. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and and the the fact that they immediately incorporate like the movie trivia thing. Like literally, mm-hmm. she in order to live, she has to play a movie trivia game on name the killer, and because she knows Loves the, the movies. And, yeah, yeah. He he gets her on a trick technicality question about name the killer in Friday the Thirteenth, and you know she's like crying and screaming and freaking out. And God bless Drew Barrymore, she looks terrified. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, you know he, he he ends she ends up saying Jason, but as you know, as most people like us who are weirdos would probably know, <laughs> uh, Jason actually doesn't go full Jason mode until the he, sequels. He even whip- <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't even get the uh, the mask until what the third one, third one, the fourth one, yeah, third, the third one. I think the second yeah. one he has like a fucking bag over his head. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then the third one he finally gets the iconic hockey mask. Yeah, so it, so it's actually his mother, Mrs. Mrs. Voorhees, who's the killer in the first one, and right. as a result, her boyfriend gets completely disemboweled Oof. on uh, on the uh, near near the pool. And I love even just the bits where she like turns the lights on and sees him there, all tied up and yeah. squirming. And then the guy, and then the voice tells her, you know we got to play this game now. So she has to like turn them back off and like leave him there. And then you hear the sounds of him being killed and everything like that. And That's her creepy being chased too. around the, and, the, the fact that they don't even show that boyfriend death, they show the aftermath, but it's just the lights yeah. off the, the audio of slicing and screaming. And, or I guess for him, it's just like loud murmurs cause he's covered with uh, tape, but, um, it's, yeah, it's just, it, that almost adds like a more terrifying aspect to it. Cause you just don't, you know what he's capable of, but you don't see what he's capable of. And there's something about that. That's really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, definitely. I also well, like the and popcorn also, smoke that fills up. Just I was going to say, like that's one of, that, one, of, one of my favorite details is that she's making stovetop popcorn uh, when he first calls. And yeah. then as the sequence goes on, the house starts filling with smoke and then fire. And because obviously it's been left on the stove while she has been preoccupied by this killer who's terrorizing her. Um and yeah, the, the the fucking like the the shot also of like the reflection of Ghostface like in the glass as he breaks through and attacks her, and then mm-hmm. the the big slow motion stab on the lawn, which has become Oof. like a really really iconic shot, obviously, and also. Craven apparently had to fight tooth and nail with the MPAA to keep it in because he 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 just straight up lied and said I don't have other coverage of that kill I like I need that one of him oh, like wow. on screen the knife plunging into her chest that is iconic um, man like it's just it, I think it's because it's so um like the, a lot of the time they're using like camera angles to kind of get away with the stab but that one legitimately mm-hmm. looks like she's just taking one to the chest it's it's very yeah. visceral and I yeah I'm glad that he was able to lie and get it in because it's very good yeah. I also like he the just straight up lied to them <laughs> of like how even after that iconic stab she actually doesn't die right away which i often forget about um no it's a slow death of her like crawling and trying but her windpipes have been crushed while trying to yell at her parents it's horrifying yeah because that's (laughs) the thing it's like she could have been killed right there taken to the tree still would have had a lot of good impact but that that last desperate moment of her seeing her folks and them not being able to hear her just because he fucked up her windpipe it's just that added desperation and scary quality to it you know it's it's just like it's she was so close to getting help and um yeah and, and, I think and, that's and her where body being dragged across the lawn holding the phone as the parents are listening, listening. to her dying breaths oh yeah good lord and and you know and, and then yeah, they the find her strung up yeah yeah and the mother's reaction just like not my baby not my baby yeah. like it's just it's so oh my god it's so this this is the part where you don't feel the satire you know what i mean like he he, he, he yeah. starts a lot of these scenes with the satirical elements, but the moment that that knife comes into play and the violence is being enacted, it is pure horror, pure terrifying. So I, yeah, I well, love I that mean, I mean, I, that, that's what I think. I, I think ultimately that something that gets missed a lot when talking about Scream, this first one especially, mm-hmm. is that I think that sadness is an underrated element of the yeah, movie and definitely. occurs not not just in like the tragic backstory stuff that deals with Sydney but also metatextually with this idea of like the sadness of these horror tropes repeating themselves even in a knowledgeable technological modern world where everyone's desensitized to it right like here is a girl who has seen every movie and would never have expected to be a character in the movie and reckoning with being that character in that movie, right? And yeah. it's just, you know, it, 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 it's not just like absurd or funny. It is legitimately scary and legitimately sad when it eventually happens. And that is something that I think is just like sort of like the perfect line that the movie has to walk. And I don't think every sequel totally pulled it off. No. But I think this one, um, you know, it is it is what makes this one sort of hold up um, in 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 the ways that it does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but uh, moving into the the central stuff. Um, obviously, we already talked about kind of like the, the the main cast that's working on uh, working out here. One of my yeah. favorite details, though, is. Uh, 
how much the kids are just kind of like assholes and yeah. how like actually desensitized they are and stuff. And yeah, like when they first after, find out about this murder, they're running around like wearing the masks, like being creeps to each other and stuff yeah, like that. Like two days later, it's not even like a, like a couple months have passed or something like that. They're like, oh, you remember uh, Jennifer? Yeah, let's <laughs> make yeah. a bunch of pranks based on her timely death. It, it, it's like they're, they're, they're literally joking about their friends being killed. Matthew Lillard is being like liver alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, while also, you know, sticking his tongue out and, and making like really funny yeah. facial gestures, like being cartoonish. So you can just tell that he's completely detached as even as a character from any of the death or violence or emotional ties. It doesn't really feel like he has any even um, they mention like uh, him kind of having a thing for for Sid even before the iconic ending scene. Um, mm-hmm. And they kind of almost imply that the only reason he's with Rose is because he couldn't get with Sid. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I just think I think that that brings some complications to it as well. They don't dive much into it, but it's just furthering the idea that these characters are kind of besides maybe Sid um, pretty selfish and uh, mm-hmm. and even though they're aware, I think that those kind of toxic traits are what ultimately lead them maybe to their demise sometimes. Mostly, mm-hmm. I guess, with Billy and uh, and Stu. But well, and and I think there's something that they're trying to get out a little bit with that. Like, obviously, the the, the engage how often these people have engaged with you know, make believe violence has to them, I guess, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a little bit like the idea that, yeah, it's, it's something that's just kind of common and talked about now, you know, because we've seen it so much in movies. It's not that they deserve it. It's like that. It's that they, um, are just so desensitized to a point and so uncaring that they don't at a certain point see it coming exactly for them. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that, yeah, that's what I was really trying to say. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of approaching it with like a, like a, like a jokey attitude. Like we're not in a horror movie. Yeah. It couldn't happen to me. <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the, the whole movie is a slow reckoning with obviously like <laughs> yes. that is what is exactly what's happening. Like, and I mean, Wes I love like, oh, even just, <laughs> I, I love just like the basic dynamic of like, you know, um, even when Sid gets her first phone call and it's like scary night right out of a horror movie or whatever. And the mm-hmm. idea of her like, you know, again, in these really amazing anamorphic steady cam shots, just walking around the place and the basic dynamic of having him, the killer, kind of like sonically in your ear, but visually you're with her point of view. Yeah. And you're constantly moving around as she's investigating and she's looking at places. She's looking at the space that someone could kind of like pop out of. And, you know, she's even like sort of challenging him on the phone because she's like, you know, I've I've seen these stupid movies. I'm not a you know, I'm not like a like a dumb girl who's going to run up the stairs. She's literally like calls his bluff when he says that he's on like the front porch. And then he starts talking about how he's going to like kill her, her, <laughs> her mother, which kind of like freaks her out and kind of, you know, she's she's definitely the more sort of mournful, sensitive character because she's yeah. actually had violence directly done to her family right. um, and, and her mother. Yeah, she's and, the one uh, not making jokes about the murders. <laughs> no, no, yeah, but that's. I think I, this I, is I, the I, one one of the big scenes though too that introduces like how much damage Ghostface is going to take as well because like uh, Sid really fights him off. Like there's a it's a pretty long sequence of him 
chasing sequence, her yeah. through the house. And then I also like that she has that uh, kind of makeshift lock because she's like not allowed to have a lock on her door. So what she does is she uses her closet door to lock her her entrance door. Um, yes. And it's just, I which is a great moment because it comes back in scream three actually, which we'll talk about. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just like it one on kind of just this innovative teenage level. Like she's, she's formed her own sense of privacy, uh, even if her dad wasn't going to allow her a lock. Um, and then yeah. to incorporate it, uh, during this, this horror sequence when Ghostface is chasing her and that's the way that she kind of separates her, her uh, from him for a, a brief moment. Um, just, just really mm-hmm. cool stuff. And I like how it telegraphs that with the dad in the, in the first scene, um, trying to get yeah. into her, into her place while Billy's trying to have sex with her. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and it's very logistical, like suspense filmmaking where like characters are constantly like making kind of micro choices on the fly in yeah. the floating camera work. And, and some of it works and some of it doesn't. And yeah, it, it, I, honestly, part of that is what makes how kind of like cheap the ghost face costume is kind of scary in a right. way. Yeah. Uh, like, cause you're constantly watching that motherfucker get like kicked in the nuts. He's <laughs> falling downstairs, oh, you yeah. know, all kinds of things are going wrong here, but it, it, you know, it's, it's obviously not stopping him from, you know, continually pursuing because that's just what happens in these movies. Yeah. Um, so no matter how realistically they try to kind of like fend it off or use their knowledge and actually work their way around him, like he's 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 still a force. Um, mm-hmm. I like the way they use the mask in this scene, too, because uh, they have that part where, you know, she escapes Ghostface and then Billy comes up right away, which is, I guess, that first kind of moment where you're like, oh, well, maybe it's not Billy because he he's he's already here and he doesn't have the the outfit and then and all the that. phone falls out of his pants yeah yeah and, and then and then the uh i love when she starts running away and opens the front door and dewey is holding the mask but in front of his face like and so it, and it kind of freaks him out a little bit but freaks he gets him scared too. yeah yeah that, like yeah. i love uh Dewey, we can get to it more detail, but Dewey's just like naivete, but also trying his best to be a hero is is a great character. Yeah. And I think David Arquette was perfectly casted for that. He has so many good moments, but um, but yeah, that that scene in general, that ending is is very fitting for both like Dewey's character to be scared as well. But then it's just a a really good choice on Craven's part to end it with the mask. Have it be Mm -hmm. separated from Billy, but then still have a little bit of suspect uh, uh, things happen like the phone. Um, It just starts to complicate things and and your brain starts to go like, well, the timing doesn't make sense with Billy, but it just seems so obvious. And, you know, as it unravels, it just gets better and better. Yeah, I I think I think the way that Sydney puts it is always is really uh, like the best, which was just like they're like, do you really think it's him? And he was like, he was there. Yeah, it's like who else? Like he was the one who was there, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, and, and even even the cops are kind of like, do you, do, you, do we really think Billy did it? He's like, you know what? Twenty years ago, I would have said not a chance, but you know, <laughs> these days, these kids, <laughs> you, these know, days. you never know. Yeah. Another thing I like, uh, with the, even just speaking on foreshadowing, is when and I didn't notice this for whatever reason the first couple times I've seen the movie, but the sh- the the part where the two pranksters uh, are in the mask and they're with they're they're in the principal's office and they're they're both in it and he's just like you know scolding them for whatever that is directly telling you there are two killers in the movie right there 
And I just thought that that was kind yeah. of interesting too. Um, it's not as obvious as anything else, but I can't help but think that's exactly what Wes is doing. I mean, he's got two guys mm-hmm. in the mask. You know, they're 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 both the culprits of the prank. It just feels like a, a, a really fun little foreshadow to the ending twist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who who is it? Uh, it's uh, Henry Winkler. Yeah. Henry Winkler yeah. is playing Principal Himley, and I, I, he's like he wielding the scissors. <laughs> Yeah, and he's yelling at the kids for. And he's them. like, he was like, we should string you up, you, uh, string you up for the heartless, desensitized little shits that you are. <laughs> oh um, man, he gets yeah, a cool shot too with like the the ghost face in his eye as he's being stabbed yeah, to death. That was pretty cool. That the, the reflection of ghost face in his eyeball and all the different ways that he kind of like scares himself yeah. with all the different mirrors and he's wearing the mask and you know because they're. they're <laughs> Yeah, the 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 a lot of the the school uh, the high school kind of humor of it is kind of funny because like you you get that and also some of like the idyllic kind of like small town photography yeah. like together kind of give you this this very uh, you know th- these these chiller vibes that don't actually exist in the movie because mm-hmm. then you get the you know you get the kids actually experiencing these murders and kind of mocking it and making fun of it and. Uh, things of that nature. You also get like crazy scenes, which in retrospect are <laughs> never exactly play the exact same of like um, Billy being like, uh, you haven't been the same since your mother died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's time that you got over that. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. The scene in the hallway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great scene. Great yeah. scene. It's always, which is like also, performed on its face, like at face value, but is, you know, has kind of like this, uh, this, this sharpness to it, I think by Williamson. Definitely. <laughs> I also think the, the part directly after that, when she goes into the bathroom is very funny. I like that Wes has the, uh, uh, the cheerleader type give off this almost like uh, academic theme about how <laughs> Sid would become a homicidal maniac. It's like her way of expressing Teen herself. suicide is out and <laughs> homicide is a much healthier therapeutic expression. Yeah, that's so good. I thought it, <laughs> it's so funny and I love that she ha- that Wes has like one of the, uh, you know, cliched popular high school girls give that diagnosis. Mm. I think that that was just very funny and um, yeah. Well, and, and, and what's crazy is that basically at, at this point in the movie, you know, he kills, uh, they, they, they shut down the, the, the school, they put a curfew in place, and the kids immediately say, well, hey, no school, curfew, party time. <laughs> They, they say pathos can have its perks. So they say, <laughs> let's let, let, let's just have a have a great time. And literally the second half of this movie is a set piece. Yeah. Which is fucking crazy. Every time I rewatch this, I'm always so um, Im- Im- impressed by that. And um, I love that and Wes I th- finds a way to incorporate more. Like he's got all these twists and kind of, you know, uh, subversions of the horror genre and directly referencing things. But the one thing that I like that he adds to kind of modernize it a little bit um, and also play on this thought of somebody watching a movie uh, is when he does the 30 second delay between the van and the house. So Um, good. And so you, yeah, so you have these scenes where it's like Jamie Kennedy, for instance, has his iconic scene where he's explaining all of the rules to Halloween and horror slashers in general. And then you get that scene, and I love that scene, but then directly after that, 
you cut to the 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 van where they're watching it and they're, and and, and they're, they're watching that scene yeah they're yeah. watching the beginning of that scene and and the the one camera guy just goes oh, this is boring and then just like turns it off for a moment or something like that and i just like that it was a little joke almost on the scene itself like uh the mm-hmm. the news guy was not interested at all in west craven's movie <laughs> that kind of thing um, yeah well, well and, and and also the way that it doubles up the idea of again these are people who are are voyeurs people who are watching yeah. like literally yeah. this guy is watching the same sequence we are on a tv like we right. are right a- absolutely uh, so like like it, it's so kind of you know not just in the writing clever but in the actual way that he shoots it like it's it's very clever in that um that that way um, yeah and he uses it too in a slasher sense later on when he realizes like like they see the killer on the tape and they're like, Oh no, we've got to go in and save Kennedy or whatever. And, uh, and they open the door and the moment they open the door, they go, Oh wait, the delay. And then boom, big, like throat slit, you know, he's already at the van. It's, and, and you even kind of forget for a second, just the way that he telegraphs it. Um, so it is still shocking and surprising and, and, Wes Craven just loves his buckets of blood. Anytime somebody gets their throat slit or anything like that, you have these. Oh, it just pours. Pours, <laughs> yeah. Like the, the shot of the van, um, the footstep just being like overrun by a blood waterfall. Basically, it's just it's unreal. So, yeah, really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, right and, there. and my, my my favorite detail in that is that you have Jamie Kennedy is watching Halloween on the couch, and this amazing anamorphic Dutch angle shot where you can see him fully laying down on the couch and the killer in the full doorway walking his way in behind him. Yep. And he is screaming yes. at the TV. What's he screaming? Jamie, <laughs> look behind you. Yes. <laughs> He's behind you, Jamie. He's literally yelling at himself. Dude, it's so <laughs> good. I, I lose it every single time. And it's so like silly and simple, but you know that Wes Craven like thought of that moment it was like yes just absolutely like best casting ever this really worked out because <laughs> yes. that is such and an then, iconic joke it's so funny yeah it's so good and then obviously this is also the first moment where he's using the score from halloween as the diegetic score for what we're actually watching right right and then, so you have all and then of this they're watching in. yeah and then you cut to them in the van screaming behind you like behind <laughs> you kid and like which is like oh what we're God. doing you know we're like Jamie, yes behind you behind you <laughs> yeah it's great it, literally it, there's it, like three or four layers of of <laughs> look behind you yeah. going on <laughs> oh my god it's uh it's beautiful it's a beautiful thing yeah yeah like that that stuff's really incredible the obviously we we talked about it briefly but the the sequence where rose mcgowan um gets killed in the garage is like she's so um, good in that scene too because she's just got such a like attitude to her character so when she's delivering all of these very um silly but fun you want to play psycho killer and he's like he's like (laughs) nodding don't kill me mr ghostface i want to be in the sequel (laughs) oh my god i love that even ghosty is like kind of getting cute with it a little bit his nod when she asks he's like "Uh funny he's like yeah i do (laughs) Uh, what movie is this from i spit on your garage (laughs) 
good, good. And and and, and, and to, to to play up moments like that, and then to have that sequence end the way that it does, where oh. her head yeah. in a full prosthetic is just Crushed. smushed by that garage um, door, crushing her face, and the sparks are going up, and her body's hanging there. It's like, and then the shot of Ghost really just brutal, like sliding into the house, slinking away <laughs> through the door. Yeah. It's so, it's like hilariously horrifying. It's it's such a strange way this movie makes me feel at times. Because I am legitimately yeah. scared of Ghostface or, you know, whoever's embodying him. Um, but yeah. he's still funny. Like he's still, the way he moves around and the way he still plays with characters is still very uh, playful and, and teasing in a way. So yeah, well, cause, cause I think, I think that it creates like a little bit of, of distance, both the yeah. humor and obviously all the, 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 the meta aspect stuff where it's like, you know, so aware of the fact that it is a movie and that you are aware of all of its patterns and rhythms and everything like that, like that just inherently, I think creates a distance yeah. pointing out the fact that you're watching a movie and that's just it. The fact that it can do stuff like that and also pull off, you know, her head getting crushed and you being shocked <laughs> yeah. is like amazing that it can do both of those at the same time. Like I've never seen anything else like do that or do it in the same way that this does it. Like it's, it's really, really crazy stuff. And like the immediate thing follow up to that is, um, Sid having sex with, um, with Billy and the way that they're, um, talking about it is, you know, like, you know, she's talking about sort of like, you know, her, her mother kind of, you know, she, she's scared that she's going to turn out like, like her mother and, you know, she's going to get, uh, killed and everyone calls her mom a slut cause she was kind of sleeping around and, uh, on her father and she thinks that she's going to be a bad seed. And Billy immediately goes, you're kind of like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Uh, you keep having this is how flashbacks. I talk to all my of, girlfriends too. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> I love it. And and she said and she says, but this isn't a movie. And he's like, sure it is. It's all one great big movie, and you can't pick your genre. And she's even saying like she would rather be in a Meg Ryan movie because like you know yeah. it would just have have less violence to it or a good porno. Or a good I think porno. She says. Yeah, and he's yeah. And Billy's like, uh, what kind of movie are we about to go in? <laughs> But yeah, yeah it's um, yeah. I uh, I also like that this breaks the trope, which is what Jamie Kennedy establishes in that awesome scene where it's like the sex you equals can't death. Have sex, <laughs> you can't do drugs or say I'll be right back and all of that stuff. And so what they're doing yeah. is kind of like, okay, you have said. Also, another subversion kind of is they don't normally, at least in the speaking on traditional slasher rules, they don't usually have the lead actress have sex. They usually have like another two supporting roles or whatever just so that they can mm -hmm. murder them um so i think it's kind of cool in that way too that it's almost like her doing that whereas from billy's perspective being the film freak he is thinks that this would be her wrapping it up right it, it would be like uh she's she it's has over. to die now yeah. because she's broken those those laws um but what she's really doing is kind of breaking that rule in a sense and making it so yeah. that it's not it's it's breaking the cycle of tropes and i think that's also in a way why jamie kennedy is allowed yeah, cool. to live <laughs> but i'm just making excuses yes. at this point but i i do <laughs> i do like that thought i do like that thought <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it literally it's absolutely what it's getting at because yeah. they, they even cross cut him saying here comes the obligatory tit shot with a <laughs> right. cross cut with like Nev getting undressed. Right. Um, yeah. And 
Yeah. And so like, you know, she is directly courting, you know, the rule that is going to confirm her death and then overcoming that. So it's like the one sort of optimistic aspect of the film is that Mm -hmm. there is one character who, who actually does break the rules. Whereas like most of the other kids are kind of resisting against them, even though they know them and like, it's not working. Right. You know, they're still ending up really gruesomely killed. They're having their heads crushed. They're being stabbed to death. Yeah. Um, they're being like the principal gutted and hung from the (laughs) goalposts. Yeah. I love that. All the teenagers are like, let's go play with the body. (laughs) Let's go pry them before they pry them down. Yeah. Let's fucking go this giant party, but like, let's go to the football field and poke, uh, like poke, the dead principal with a stick. <laughs> it's just yes. so funny. Ugh. Yeah, like that that stuff's so dark and so mean. Like yeah. the sense of humor that it that that it has in those um those moments. And yeah, but then we get the the the, the big final sequence where uh Billy is seemingly killed by the ghost faced uh killer, despite the fact that Nev is kind of still um, suspicious of him. I think it's because of a conversation where she has, you know, who did, who did you use your one phone call on? Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, he's like, I called my dad, even though in the police station, she saw the actual, the sheriff call his dad. And he was just like, he's like, what do I have to do to prove that I'm not a killer? He's <laughs> very, very whiny about it. Um, <laughs> But Ghostface comes in and kills him, which is like the the, the second uh, time where they go, you thought it was Billy again, yeah. but it's not Billy. It's not. We promise. <laughs> <laughs> Even wipes off the blood off I love, the, with, with, the, with, with the hand. I love his like turn to Sid, too, and it's just like, Sid, and then dies. <laughs> it's also fun to yeah. watch that in like when you watch it again, just because you know, he's acting at that point. Yes. Uh, so that's so good. Like, like being aware of the fact that the characters are also putting on a performance and like drawing, like doing this like construction, like they are actually directing a horror movie for the other characters in a way. Yeah. (laughs) hundred percent. That stuff is also so cool on rewatches. Um, especially as you know, uh, Nev Campbell is like running around, this this great house set that they built. I'm assuming it's a set because it's like really intricate, but yeah. possible it's just a real location. I'm not sure. Um, but like great wide shots of the exterior of her like on the second floor, like pounding on the window or her falling off the roof and landing on the boat in front mm-hmm. of the garage and seeing her best friend's head crushed in the garage door. That's the thing. Um, he, he maps out the, the house in such a great way. The geography yeah. is so How characters like, well stumble upon planned out. Bodies and 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 get to a certain point because they were at another point yeah. in the house that and, and so that they can meet up eventually like they're Dude, he's really that, well thought out that shot when dewey opens the front door and he's kind of like walking towards them and then he falls over and you can see the reveal oh. that the knife is sticking out of his back yeah i also love the um that same shot when when ghost uh, walks over him and it's not even because you're what you're focused on camera wise is Sid running away but what you can still see unfocused is ghost take out the knife and then do his awesome uh, yes. finger uh, his hand wipe that he does with the blood um, and you see it yeah. but it's unfocused and in the background and there's just something about that that I found really terrifying too yeah yeah it's that 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 stuff like is all coming really really 
strong um how he's just like you know and and it, it is like in this first movie especially i think it loses it the magic a bit in the sequels yeah. in the first movie it, it really does have this like anyone is going down yes. like kind of aspect to it like you have no fucking clue if dewey is gonna make that or not like you're just kind of like holy fuck he just got stabbed in the back or when characters get shot like like uh like when gail gets hit too and you're just like kind of yeah. losing it a little bit and, the, and that, the way that it's all been really you know expertly constructed and the way that it moves around the house the way that the camera moves it's it's really really fantastic stuff like next level yeah and this is also when sid starts to um kind of suspect almost everybody like there's no one that she's trusting in any way shape or form because even jamie kennedy comes up after who's, who's still alive and he's <laughs> like both you assholes yeah, or whatever she's she just says, like, yeah. yeah pointing the gun at both and i love lillard's uh this is the start of his completely unhinged performance that we see in the finale and he's yeah. like the, the way that wes is shooting this part where it's sid and jamie and Stu, um is it's a it's a back and forth from basically point of view uh, and so you see Lillard trying to express that convince he's her that innocent, Jamie is the killer and he's, he's the innocent so, one. Yeah. But he's so over the top and he's already doing his like spitting and sweating because he's been killing all yeah. night, most likely. And so he's delivering it to the camera and he's like got his hands out towards the camera. Yeah. Like, come on, Sid, get me the gun. Come it's on. okay. Yeah. Like just, he's just going <laughs> yeah. insane. And it, I think honestly, it's probably not the move that Stu probably should have done. Cause she was even more freaked out. <laughs> closes the door and then we we start the uh the big old reveal of billy and and stew and all that but um yeah i love which, which is a great reveal presentation there <laughs> yeah th- this th- this does still have my favorite um like twist ending to any of them because i think the other ones they get very self-consciously ridiculous because they yeah. know that you're anticipating a twist now yeah yeah, um, which I, I this, think this, can can work. It doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one, I think, is definitely stronger uh, in, in mm-hmm. that twist, even though it's still a little too silly for me. But I do like aspects of it. Whereas this one feels completely in line of with, a piece the tone with the tone. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it feels really on point. Um, and I love that it's well, yeah, still... And, and, and Billy doing the little, uh, we all go a little yeah. mad sometimes from yeah. Psycho. I was just going to say. Um, and that he has to also go uh, uh, Psycho, 1967, Alfred Hitchcock, or whatever. Like yeah. He like, starts <laughs> reciting every little detail about the movie. Uh, very funny. Just the fact that this is two film bros that went into serial killer mode. It always reminds me of... Um, like th- th- this ending when it's Stu and, and Billy, it's just like if we went completely unhinged after Sleazoids like departed or something like that. You yeah, know? we would we would just choose more obscure movies. We yeah. would we would. Uh, yeah, we would be like, have you seen the John Cassavetes, the incubus? <laughs> that, that's how we're going to serial Dude, murder someone. So no I one hope, take that. I no one take that. That's God. ours. You know what? If they if they're I don't think they will be. But if they're. Uh, ballsy enough to pull that in the fifth one that would actually be so fucking funny if the film if they do film bro again but they do it in like really obscure really obscure exploitation films (laughs) yeah so funny anyway oh my god yeah no this is this this big finale where they reveal that it was obviously Stu and it was billy and they're both like really unhinged and they planned it based on you know all of their experience watching movies and there's you know there's a little bit of you know 
they I, I think they said that they were undecided the way that they were going to go it where there was mm. two ways they were thinking no motive which is really scary or they were thinking that you know there should be some sort of construction um to the way that it kind of played out yeah. and they opted for both that, so they yeah, opted for say. billy is very upset about his his uh his mother breaking up with his father which uh which happened because um uh sydney's mother uh had an affair um and so also broke up kind of like his family and i think they they say it really cruelly too they say your mom flashed her shit all over town like she was sharon stone but let's face it sid (laughs) she she was your mother was no (laughs) sharon Sharon stone Stone. (laughs) and the open the open hands as he does it Yes. No, Matthew Lillard, uh, amazing in, I could, in this stuff. I could talk for like 30 minutes and just reiterate every single thing that Lillard does in this scene. One, one of my favorite ones of of his, which is they say that this is all part of the game called Guess How I'm Gonna Die. Uh-huh. And then she, she says, fuck you. And they said, we already played that game. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously implying that they all they had sex. And uh, Matthew Lillard gets a great line following that where he says, come on, Sid, you want to play? It's it's a fun game. It's called Bukai <laughs> and you die. <laughs> Another this my favorite one. This this actually got the biggest laugh out of uh, out of all my brothers because I watched this with uh, both of them. And um, and it's the line where he actually calms down for just a second. And it's when she, she, he's on the phone and he's kind of like it's at the point where he's been stabbed uh, because they're stabbing each other to get away with the murder like they were defending themselves. Um, Which is so, so, so good, by the way, and oh, so, yeah. so dark yeah, that they're, so. they're 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 literally being like, you know, we're going to make ourselves the lone survivor and stab stab each other. So it looks like that, you know, we were almost killed as well. But then they start getting the performances start getting woozy from like the blood loss and they're going too hard (laughs) like they got too into it so they start stabbing each other more angrily it's it's really good stuff they're just too unhinged at this point um but the why this line i think delivers so well is because he's so crazy loud and over the top throughout this entire finale and then when when the uh i think it's sid when she's on the phone and hiding in the closet uh, she says, like, so what are you going to tell them? What was your motivation? And he says it with the most sincerity ever. He's just like, pure pressure. Pure I'm way pressure. too oversensitive. <laughs> yeah. I, dude, we were laughing for like 10 fucking minutes because he says it with such sincerity, almost like it's the only thing that Stu actually believed this whole time. And, yes. And I just, I love it. I think it's hilarious. And then, of course, it leads into like a more, uh, over the top line, but obviously iconic where he's just like, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. <laughs> by the way, apparently, uh, improvised by Lillard. Oh, you God among men. <laughs> God damn it. Why didn't he get an Oscar for this? He deserves yeah, it. Yeah. They, yeah, they were, they were in the, the zone. Dude, he um, was in this entire sequence. Holy shit. And I don't want to take anything away from Billy. Billy is, 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 is really good too. It's just that because Matthew Lillard gets to do the unhinged thing, it's just more obviously entertaining, but I do like Billy's Mm. kind of like bad boy, dark demeanor, Johnny Depp thing that he's doing too. That it is, (laughs) it is very good and very fitting. It's just that you can't help but love Lillard in the middle of all this chaos. 
No, because he's he's just really going like really going over the top in a way that like really perfectly matches like the <laughs> the you know, entire the, twist just, the sort and of scene and the, unraveling. Yeah, the, the, the loss of control that the that the characters are experiencing as yeah. they are like seeing their plan to like frame her dad for on the one year anniversary of his wife's death. And yeah, come kill to fruition. Sid and, but but Billy does get the like for me the thesis line of the movie, which is the the sick fucks you sick fucks have seen one too many movies, and he said, "Don't blame the movies, Sid. Yeah. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative." And that's something um, that's like I, uh, I I don't know if Wes was I, I can't imagine that he was like preemptively defending himself with this movie because he's done plenty of other horror movies and there's plenty of other slashers out there. But I did find it interesting to read that there were actually a couple copycat uh, murderers that were directly related to this. Now, I would obviously I'm not arguing it's the movie. What I would argue is that these kids were probably going to do something anyway. They saw Scream and just like the movie theorizes, it just makes psychos more creative. (laughs) But um, uh, I did find that interesting when I looked up some of the controversies of the film. The fact that there were like a couple sets of teenage uh, dudes that were like, yeah, let's get a mask and some people up like so pretty wild yeah yeah no i i think that that's that's really interesting and actually we'll talk about it when we when we do jump into two and three here Mm. because there's there's a part of three that is actually sort of affected by that aspect but they were definitely very very playfully um using it here since the the, the basis of the film obviously was that all of these characters have have grown up and it's maybe affected their their the way that they sort of uh perceive their reality they perceive it through construction they perceive it kind of through movies a little bit which really really works when in like the last bit here you get like uh billy watching jamie lee curtis on the tv uh hiding in the closet from michael <laughs> right. myers and then you get him opening the closet and getting stabbed by the umbrella by sydney and then literally even better fucking one of the it to me like one of the most genius moments in the film is uh uh, Sydney dropping the TV on Matthew Lillard's head oh, and yeah. on the TV it's Jamie Lee Curtis like holding the knife as if the knife is about to go into his face while the TV falls on him yeah so good I always had a thing yeah. for you Sid yeah yeah, great. But that that like like that stuff is is you know again it, it's it's really simple stuff, but it's really of a piece with what the entire film um, is doing and how this whole set piece has so many little you know visual creative details and things like that is on top of its you know really really clockwork construction, um, and also. You know, th- you know, this ends up going to a bunch of different, you know, places where they they end up killing uh, him. Uh, they end up killing Billy, and then Billy, they're like, "This is where the killer is going to come back to life," and they Iconic. execute him like straight in the head, not in my movie. Yeah, um, love it. But then you also have uh, Gail, who has kind of like helped them out of this situation. The the journalist who has become like really involved, and Courtney Cox uh, has a very interesting performance because yeah, I like her. She's she's playing very. Um, kind of like bitchy yeah. it, which which apparently was like you know because she was super popular for friends it was you know she they actually passed on her for the role until she said no 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 I really want to change up like the kind of image that I have so I really want to play someone who's kind of like got this kind of darker edge to them yeah. and there's something so dark to me about how even in the victory of this film where they have killed you know they've they, you know all these people have died obviously mm-hmm. and they've you know they they come out and they you know they they stop the mass killing and 
you just get her uh, immediately still covered in blood reporting it on the scene being like, okay, uh, let's take it back to one. Come on, move it. This is my big shot. Those are the last lines that you hear in the movie. She goes right back to it. Yeah, again, it's this this entertainment industry that surrounds death yeah. is like still chugging along the same way that like even when they're directors a part are still of making movies about it. Yeah, yeah, that, um, that is fairly fairly dark too, and it still adds. I, I think it's because Gail Weathers is such a, um, and in a sense, they all have elements of like uh, cartoonishness. Uh, I think it also still balances well with the satirical element of it too. Like after, mm-hmm. after all this shit, it is kind of darkly humorous that she's still like grabbing the camera and like, let's report on it. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So yeah, really solid. I, I, I really love this movie. Yeah, me too. We should pivot to reductive rating round, which for, yeah. for, for me, this is, um, just one of my all time favorite uh, films just in, in, in general. Yeah. Uh, so this has to get the five, uh, for me. Uh, this is a movie that obviously was a huge gateway into getting into genre films and paying attention to, you know, what it is like a director actually does with the camera and like hearing characters talk about, you know, other movies and actually going and watching those movies. And the idea of a movie in conversations with an entire history of movies and genre was just a concept that like blew my mind. Um, and again, not just characters like saying the names of movies on screen, but like an actual filmmaker playfully engaging with the patterns and rituals of the quote unquote scary movie. Like this is honestly, this is the original, uh, damn my life, a movie, (laughs) uh, for real kind of moment. Um, and I think that there's something so interesting about how Craven is at once he's gleeful and violent and voyeuristic about that and kind of mean in a way. But I also think that the movie you know, is, is feels really sad about that. Cause Craven literally yep. saw was getting fan letters from kids who grew up on his movies and who were saying that, you know, they were cathartic and scary kind of at the same time. And he wanted to provide a similar experience or at least a gateway to that experience. And I mean, there's even there's, more hope in this technically than nightmare. Yeah. Because nightmare ends with Freddie taking them all <laughs> to Dreamtown. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, 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 and with this too, though, I think there's the added element of, you know, again, like all of these kids are on a journey to navigate, you know, a world where they're being awoken to the idea of death is something that occurs in it, which is obviously yeah. very scary, something to be afraid of. But this film in particular, it's like now we're also being introduced to there's an industry around death that you are being locked into a feedback loop with, not just in the case of like, you know, you ingest violence for entertainment, which almost every character in this movie does in some capacity. But like also, um, you know, then all of a sudden you find yourself in visual sequences where those things are then happening to you. And when it suddenly transitions into a suspense set piece, like it's very gracefully filmed. Um, you know, the, the, the chase scenes and the cutting, you know, they are the, 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 the way that, you know, we are locked into what the character can see versus what they can hear constantly walking around with the phones. It's, it's like modern technology and attitudes, um, that present this idea of like distance or desensitization, desensitization, or mm-hmm. kind of like this, you know, the, again, these modern characters, but finding themselves shocked by these very old school methods of something as simple as like, again, being just stabbed 
cold steel piercing a warm gut is the way that I kind of describe the, the visceral impact of when this goes horror movie mode because it, it does have that shock to it that shock factor yeah. which is just crazy to think about because again the movie explicitly tells you at every moment exactly what it's doing mm-hmm. and yep. it, it is built and constructed around the idea that you know where it's going um, so just so many really brilliant um, gestures like finding ways to have characters watch each other like they're in a movie like with the uh, the, the delayed camera or have characters experience things you know that they've already referenced before or even think about their own lives and their emotional lives in the context of a movie like you know the idea of an edited for TV relationship or wishing that you were in a Meg Ryan movie yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then finally kids who plan their murders based around entirely what they've seen in movies like literally looking at other people making art and being like what if we killed people and it was artful yeah don't don't they have a <laughs> line then, where it's like art cr- imitating life imitating art imitating or, or something maybe yes. it's the opposite of that but yeah I, I i i think i think it's that's in the that's a conversation they have in the second one oh, but yeah okay. same idea right, right. Um, and then finally, literally a TV screen playing Halloween being like used as a weapon and the music being diegetically used, like as Dewey walks around being freaked out by the Halloween score because he's literally in a a sequence from Halloween. Mm -hmm. Like that shit is just, you know, again, it it sounds kind of simple and stupid when you just say it, but there's so much formal complication to walk that line and pull that stuff off that it's just, it really does blow my mind. And also worth noting this, movie was shot by god of the show mark Irwin, the dude who shot the fly Hell videodrome yeah. scanners the brood god the damn. blob new nightmare uh freddy got fingered nice that's awesome. that last one in there oh yeah it's a good um, movie. yeah and the fact that once again it ends on a 45 minute long single set piece that is absolutely amazing it took them 21 days to film it they said that they filmed it 21 days straight uh, from the time that the sun set to the time that it rose. They did overnights. Wow. And they said that after it wrapped, the crew made T-shirts that said, I survived scene 118. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, like that that stuff really, really all just uh, uh, really, honestly, really incredible stuff. And I, I think about this movie a lot, and I find that, you know, for a film that is about overdosing on violence on, on as entertainment characters who have done it, viewers who have done it, the movie itself and doing it. Um, I think that this is surprisingly, you know, both effective as the kind of movie it's trying to be as a piece of entertainment without sacrificing the fact that it is actually about something. And honestly, even though I, again, I do appreciate funny games, the fact that it did kind of get to similar ideas without having to, make it, I guess as painful or horrible (laughs) of experience. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, you know, like this movie found the tragedy and pain and sadness in that, uh, just by what, what Craven was able to do with the camera. He didn't even need it in the script. He was like, I just have this idea and I know how to translate it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah. You know what? I think I'm going to five it too, actually. Let's go. Yeah, it's getting that upgrade. <laughs> I, this is probably my um, shit. I don't even know. I feel like I've seen this like ten times over my lifetime. Honestly, it's it was one of the first horror movies I ever saw, and it's interesting that it is. I think I did mention this in the beginning, but it 
I mean, it, it kind of it teaches you everything you need to know about the at least classic slasher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so by the time I got into watching all of those classic slashers, I was like well established in the rules already. So I could kind of see things. Um, and, and I just think that that's pretty interesting that a film is able to do that and able to recognize such formulas and patterns that it actually works. Like it, it applies to the films that you go back and, and watch. I remember one time, for instance, uh, this would probably have been a few years after I watched Scream for a couple times. And I was just really starting to get into like any horror that I could possibly get my hands on, even if it was like straight to DVD bullshit. And me and my buddies were watching this. I don't even remember the title of it, honestly, but it, it's it's based in a ski resort of some kind. And it's a very typical slasher, but in a ski resort, it's from like the late nineties, maybe even early two thousands, but it doesn't try to do anything, uh, different even after scream comes out, which I thought was interesting. But as the film was going on, uh, I was just calling things out. I was like, Oh, okay. That's not the killer anymore. I just literally applied Randy's rules of engagement to to the movie and i called the killer <laughs> randy's like, rules of engagement that's what they should call the book that's right <laughs> of horror engagement that's right um and and so by the time the movie wrapped up i i called the killer in the first like 15 minutes i was saying who was gonna die and who was gonna live and i was completely correct now we're talking based on a completely generic slasher. But I just find that interesting that he's just got such an understanding of these movies that he was able to make me, a 13-year-old know-nothing, be able to engage and watch these movies in a different way before I'd ever seen any of them. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that itself is just a testament to how well-directed and uh, how uh, well-educated, I guess, Wes Craven is within... Uh, these genres and just filmmaking in general. He's just such a control over the satirical elements, balancing it out with the horror elements, which I found, especially given some of the the lines that these characters have to deliver, I found would probably be very difficult for anyone else to do, but he does it flawlessly. Yeah, um, there, there's honestly stuff in this, like stuff that we've even mentioned out loud that honestly sounds stupid. like it would be moronic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Like, really, really dumb. Um, and, uh, and he just he found a tone that that balanced both of those things out while ha- making a commentary on horror slashers on uh, the entertainment industry and how the audiences uh, um, interact with horror slashers and just killing on mm-hmm. screen in general. Uh, it, it, you just, yeah, the, you the, the, the tragedy of an audience filled with bloodlust, even in the first place, like wanting <laughs> yeah. to see that kind of stuff and like loving it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which I love that he dives into the second one, especially in that opening where everyone's just like, you know, screaming yeah. at the screen and stabbing towards the screen and stuff like that. But it's just without his uh, masterful understanding of, of the horror genre, it, no one yeah. else could make this. Of I guess at the end of the day, yeah. that's that's my big review. Nobody else could make this this movie the way that it is and could ride that very fine line that the dialogue uh, gives him. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that five out of five. Uh, I do think this is a masterpiece. And I just, uh, yeah, it's a formative movie for me. So I love it. Yeah. Me too. And Matthew Lillard's yep. a god again. I'm just putting it on the record for the tenth time. Incredible performance. <laughs> he should have got so much more work out of this. I know. I know. He's so good. All right. Well, I think I think that that will wrap it up for Scream. We're going to be right back, and we're going to do a uh, single segment on both Scream Two 
and Scream 3. Showgirls. Absolutely frightening. Hello? Hello? Gail, Dewey, whoever, um, call me back. I can only hear myself. I only hear you too, Sydney. I am not dreaming. I am not crazy. He was there in Woodsboro. That's not Woodsboro, Sydney. Stab 3 is back in production. You gotta be praying this movie keeps going. All right, we are back and we are talking uh, Scream 2 from uh, the 1997 American slasher film directed by Wes Craven and also Scream 3, the 2000 yeah. American slasher film directed by uh, <coughs> Wes Craven. Um, the thing I'll immediately start with about this is that I do think that these are both good movies, Yeah. but I do think that what I said I love so much about the first one is a little bit less pure here, which yeah. I think is just sort of something it comes with that sequel was franchising, I think, right? Like it's, I, I think, I think it's just something that naturally was bound to happen. Like the, the, for me, it's just, again, the whole thing that makes scream special is the the feedback loop aspect that Wes Craven was describing in his style that he was very self-consciously implementing right which was this very basic idea of these characters are characters who have seen a steady cam chase sequence of a woman being stabbed and now are in that exact same kind of shot right whether you know whether you know you're aware enough of the movies to actually sense that that's what's happening and or whether you're just enjoying how well done it is that was you know it, it doesn't matter because both both ways it works but that was definitely what made scream like there's a kind of like a magic in a bottle you know uh, quality to that and you can sense in the writing and construction a little bit um, starting with two and especially hitting in three, yeah. just a little bit more kind of looseness that I think just kind of cheapens the effect a little bit, even though there are still some really playful stuff and some really cool stuff that, that, that Craven is doing, you know, he still gets some really, you know, strong, um, set pieces yeah. put into both of these films, but you can tell that both of these films were basically immediately greenlit off the success of the first one. And they already did have a treatment kind of like pre-written. Um, For like the when, sequel, when imagine, like the second one, he, the, the, he, yeah, he had a, a treatment written for the second one and also a treatment written for the third one. Oh, actually, okay. I was, uh, the, the third one always felt to me like an afterthought, um, compared to, to two. Like when I was watching two, I did. I did notice some, you know, s some some differences in quality, but I could still tell that he was pr still pr pretty much locked in that kind of uh, satirization of both the uh, like the audience looking at a sequel um, and the horror elements. But I do think that as the these these go on. Um, with two and three, they also do become more generic slashers, which is strange. Uh, in, in a little in bit, moments. yeah. Now, not more so in the third one than the second one. I think the second one, for the most part, is is 
pretty strong, uh, even when it kind of develops more of the character stuff with Randy and Gail and Dewey and Sid. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do notice a little bit more of like them tr- really forcing it. I guess that would be it. Yeah. Yeah, because there is definitely this quality that is lost where, again, we were talking about how dangerous that first one feels. Yeah. That it's like an anything goes kind of uh, experience to watch. And you can definitely feel now that they have found their own kind of rhythm and formula that you don't think that they're going to really betray. Mm-hmm. Um and so definitely when you're watching the second one, which which kind of actually provides a little bit of intrigue just in like that's exactly the kind of commentary they were providing yeah. for the first one. And now they're kind of falling victim to it themselves a little bit. Yeah. Um, but there's still stuff that really does um, work. And, and Scream 2 takes place, I think it takes place like a year or two after the first film. And yeah. it has a lot of the same surviving characters. It has... Uh, Sydney played by Campbell um, and it has uh, Gail and it has Dewey and it has um, Jamie Kennedy's character Randy uh, but now they are at uh, a college in Ohio where they are targeted by a copycat killer who is doing the uh, you know doing basically the exact same thing that the killers in the first one were doing yeah. but now they are being inspired by not just the movies what if they are being inspired by the events of the first movie which is also being turned into a movie so there yeah. you can see Cold them kind of adding you know like it, it adds satirical elements about the basic idea of like cash grab sequels and how they never live up to the originals and they've kind of found their own repetition and formula and and even a movie industry out of the events of the first movie yeah so and they do have uh, a funny conversation about sequels which i will say i think they were just kind of keeping the titles they were saying to a more i guess generic audience with the sequels that they were mentioning but um but I do like the initial conversation and the thought of it. Just like they, they, well, yeah, they were they were like sequels in, uh, in inherently are inferior y- yeah. to the originals, uh, and people are being like, well, you know, aliens. Well, you <laughs> know, T two. You have you just have a hard on for Cameron. I think one of them says at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. W- w- what's cool about this is that this was a sequel that was basically almost as successful as the original film was, and I guess it's mm-hmm. worth noting we didn't get to mention it, but like the. The the effect that Scream had on a 90s audience was monumental. Oh, yeah. Uh, at huge. the time, un- until Halloween 2018 came out, it was the highest grossing slasher film basically ever made. Wow. Um, it did. It, it was shot on like $10 million or something, and they ended up grossing like, uh, like over 250 or something stupid. <laughs> That's wild. Um, <laughs> maybe 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 not maybe it was closer to like 200 i can't remember exactly but it was like it was a stupid amount of money yeah um and so i i've heard because i wasn't old enough to be seeing scream 2 in a theater but i have heard that as a result the like scream 2 box office and people there on opening weekend it was like the stupidest thing in the world it was fucking packed <laughs> it was like like imagine like going Star on opening Wars night again. and seeing the opening sequence of this in a theater um yeah and that would be wild. Like just really would be, um, especially too, because you know this is um, <laughs> the the opening to Scream Two. I think is one of Crave, another one of Craven's strongest set pieces that he's ever done. Yeah, I like it a lot. Um, and because basically he went, okay, so how do you top one of the hardest opening sequences of all time <laughs> with one that's somehow almost as good? Yeah, um, almost. 
which is just Wes Craven going anguish mode, which is the 1987 film that we talked about where there's like a killer in a movie theater and yeah. like the, the screen violence is creating like this hypnotic trance for the audience and everything. But you have Jada Pink, Pinkett uh, Smith and going to the premiere of stab which is the movie based on the uh events of the first film and everyone's there wearing the ghost face costume and being handed fake knives and she's <laughs> literally being like it's some dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls getting their white asses cut the fuck up and like <laughs> she doesn't want to be there she's not particularly into it i also love the full recreation of the opening of the first film mm-hmm that they yeah. do Heather Graham, Heather Graham is playing yeah. Drew Barrymore yeah and the, there's shots of the crowd like throwing popcorn at the screen hooting and hollering as she like also, drops the towel because they think they're going to see her naked <laughs> I also like um, that that Jada's uh, character is like really turned off by the whole thing at first but then you do see her at one point kind of settle and sit in it and I don't think she's enjoying yeah. herself but I do like that Wes is kind of having her still be engaged almost as if like even if you don't like these kind of movies I bet if you sat down and watched 10 minutes of them even if you don't like it you would kind of engage with it just because it's such a visceral genre of filmmaking yeah people like going to horror movies because they like to just be like kind of go with someone else and get and like jump a little bit you know yeah yeah (laughs) so I I like that she starts to sink into it a little bit she's still uncomfortable but she's kind of even even, even though she's shouting at the screen what does that have to do with the plot her being butt ass naked (laughs) yeah yeah and then she's like yelling like turn around turn around like that basically doing the The star star 69 his ass (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And I also love that the energy from the audience is just insane throughout the entire thing. It's not like, you know, the the credits start rolling and everybody's up and cheering and stabbing and screaming or whatever. They're like 10 minutes into the opening sequence of stab and they're still hooting, hollering, never shutting up, just screaming, uh, punching their knife into the air. I was just like, I couldn't help but think. Um, it would be, I would say, like very fun to be involved in that audience. But at the same time, you, oh, like, you definitely, you definitely would not be watching that movie. Like it's like, yeah, like five like, minutes. Like in. You're, you're, you're not, you're not getting the experience. You got some dude screaming in your ear. Yeah, like five <laughs> minutes in, you'd be like, all right, that's enough. I get it. You liked. Uh, uh, well, you know what's, you know what actually is. Wild? <laughs> this is also the first this movie. Is the first one. I just, I just uh, contextualized that within my brain. There, you're right. It's, it's the first one. So they're already stoked based on it just being around a murder. So that's actually even funnier. I, I, for some reason, I never put that together. Yeah, no, they're they're literally just doing an exaggerated, like insanely exaggerated audience hype reaction to. Uh, basically just get into exactly what we were talking about, which is that the first film is designed in a way to be watched by people like that. People who know right. all of the patterns, people who know the rituals and are like, Oh, she's taking her clothes off. Oh, the phone is ringing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that even across all these films, but especially that first one, man, when that phone rings, it's fucking piercing. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and there's, there's a great moment in the second one that I really love where they even, um, uh, sort of reference that quality to it where Sydney hears the phone ringing as she's like leaving mm-hmm. and uh, 
she's like drawn to answer it. Like she knows who's on the other line. You know, you could just not pick it up, but she's like, literally there's like this huge push in on the phone, huge push in on her. She's like, nah, I got to answer that phone. (laughs) (laughs) There's she's just like metaphysically drawn to it. It's like hilarious. Yeah. Um, but then you get another really great, you know, again, this this opening sequence has great steady cam maneuvers throughout sort of like the theater lobby. I love the lightning effects um, on the movie that are freaking people out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jada's boyfriend goes into the stall and thinks he's like hearing people like making out in the next stall or something. And he gets a knife through the ear. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that which like, is just pull, really like, brutal. I love the way that they film it, too. So it's like he's got his head right next to the uh, right next to the, the wall. And, you know, they show the ghost uh, stab him and and what they do is have his head like pop out. And then when he does, the blood just like pours down uh, and you just see the knife sticking out at the end. And it's just the, enough for mm. your brain to kind of connect it all. It's very visceral and gross and awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and then watching Ghostface like literally put on his clothes and sit down next to Jada Pinkett Smith while the movie is going, and you know she's starting to get into it. You know she's starting to be like, "No, move! Don't do that! Don't do that!" And she's like, "If that was me, I'd be out of there." Yeah. And, you know she starts literally hugging the killer who she thinks is her boyfriend. Watching Graham get stabbed in the iconic shot that the MPAA wanted cut out, um, and then she finds the blood on her hands and she gets stabbed, and you know she starts screaming, and They're all, like, you know her cheering. screams and her death is being. <laughs> muffled by the sounds of the crowd reacting and literally the killer gets up and stabs her like eight times (laughs) while the crowd is just like react because other people in the crowd are also pretending to stab people so they're like yeah whatever they're just putting on a show yep yep and i just realized Um, too that kind of like the use of uh the mask and all of that didn't they didn't they do that in um one of the michael myers movies where he, um, like, Halloween it's a little different because he like switches out the mask for somebody else like an innocent person but I just thought mm-hmm. that that was kind of cool maybe a subtle reference I don't know yeah, because in, in 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 Halloween four, I think that they is the one where they establish kind of like the the community aspect, where like people are aware of Michael and they like sell right. masks at like the store and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but Jada going up to the stage and just like screaming the projector light shining on her as she dies in front of everyone as they finally realize like what it is that they're seeing and hearing. <laughs> and they're like three people, 300 people just watched her die. And I think they say at one point that they thought it was a publicity stunt. And <laughs> right. Randy just says the multiplex is a dangerous place to be these days. You know, like that's just <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Um and by the way, apparently the whole like at, stabbed as many times as she was and like the whole slow walk and bleed out. This was apparently uh, Jada's idea. Oh, nice. That's awesome. You know what? Because I've heard, J- Jada, I've heard that Wes actually incorporates a lot of like the actor's ideas in his in his movie making. Like he's, you know, he'll listen at the very least, because I actually I heard that um, Jamie Kennedy uh, when he eventually, unfortunately, dies in this in this one, um, he kind of was talking to Wes about it, too, because he felt like and, and I think he's right. Randy's a very iconic scream character. So he's going to got to go out with a bang. And um, I think they were actually initially going to do the off camera kill that Jamie has. And then Jamie insisted on like having the super bloody face shot of his body afterwards and stuff like that. So it seems to me that Wes is actually very open to working with um, the actors and, and kind of open to, to ideas, which I think is a positive. Yeah. thing. So. 
Yeah. Well, and, and, and a, a lot of stuff, especially with this one was that because it was kind of so hastily, um, greenlit because mm-hmm. they were kind of like they they were like when they were testing the movie with test audiences they knew what they had they went holy fuck um right. will you guys do this right away and in order to get west to agree to two sequels they actually um promised him that he could make uh like a third film whatever he wanted a passion project oh, okay do you know what that was <laughs> so he yeah it was um it was the movie um I think in music of the heart or music from the heart. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he, he literally just wanted to make a, a very small drama film about a woman <laughs> who teaches music in Harlem. <laughs> that was, that was, that was his passion so project. So a scream so, franchise. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, and you, 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 uh, you might remember there's that bit in scream three where the director literally says, I've always wanted to just make a love movie, but they are a love, a, a classic love story, but they keep saying you need to make a scary movie first. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I also, literally that's pulled from Craven's life <laughs> as another, uh, real brief reference, uh, or Craven reference. I forgot to mention that they also have that very funny moment in the first one where the principal goes out into the hall and the janitor is dressed as Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> he's like not now not not you freddy or whatever yeah, he says yeah. so funny so ridiculous but anyway continue it's like a moment straight at a new nightmare yeah 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 um, i love wes but yeah it's yeah so wes definitely because of the way that these were written uh they there was a lot of kind of like they were writing stuff and then filming it like the next day kind of deal because it, it you know it wasn't like a fully fleshed out script they you know uh kevin williamson only had a treatment and they were greenlit within two months of release and they were shooting within five months of release oh, okay wow um, that's wild and yeah, so like Williams was still uh, writing when they entered production, and apparently it was a very chaotic and kind of you know crazy uh, uh, experience. And it's kind of impressive that this film this comes as off is. as controlled as it does. Yeah, uh, the second one anyway, it, especially. I felt like to me it was like some of I felt the writing was a little weaker this time around, but it didn't feel as a little if wonkier, it was yeah. because they were chaotically rushing it on the spot. So now that I actually know that, that it, it comes off as way more controlled than I initially thought it, it was in a sense. Like mm-hmm. just, just because, um, I mean, when, when you say that he's, he was basically making it up as he goes in some regard, like that, that should be more obvious. Well, yeah, and in I, the movie, well, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know isn't. if you heard too, this was one of the first movies ever to have the, um, the experience of uh, suffering from internet leaks. Oh, really? Um, and it they partially that in the third why, one, right? Part, yeah, b- partially because of the experience of what they had on the second one, which was that the movie had to be rewritten because uh, a, a leaked script of the second one went out and people knew who the killers was. It was originally supposed to be um, her best friend and the boyfriend again. I'm pretty sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I do like that they have they have a really great conversation uh, between Randy and Dewey uh, where yeah. it's just them where they say like who's the suspect <laughs> and here's why and here's why I'm actually not even canceled out of being a suspect myself, which I thought was very funny. Um, but they yeah. do even mention they're like, ah, it's uh, it would be too obvious for it to be the boyfriend. They can't do that again, that kind of thing. And then they yeah. say the, <laughs> the, the best friend wouldn't be an obvious thing. So it's, it's funny that they initially had that as an idea. 
Yeah. And then they, they had to rewrite and they did for the third one, they did the thing that they even mentioned in the third one, which was that they actually did have three different scripts and mm-hmm. they didn't tell, right. and they they actually filmed three different endings and didn't tell which cast members what ending they were actually going to do. Do you know if they <laughs> ever released those endings? I don't know. I wonder if like you I'd, got I'd the DVD curious. if there were like deleted endings or whatever, <laughs> alternate endings. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, I'd be curious. I, but I really, um, I, 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 we won't have to skip there. But I eventually, I do kind of like the ending, even though it's a little over the top and silly. But we'll get to it. Yeah, I kind of like uh, both of these um, endings in 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 different ways. I think the um, crazy silliness of the ending of the third one is honestly what saves it for me by the end. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some really good stuff in 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 that one. But yeah, the, the most of the second one, I would say it is kind of a, a retreat of a lot of what the first one was already doing. But now yeah. they are obviously, you know, they're they're doing it as um, college students. Uh, College students and, and obviously as as a sequel, yeah, having a, you know obviously already experienced it uh, one once before. But Craven for me really did go off with the set pieces on this one. Like these ones are uh, in a lot of ways just as hard, and in other ways like even more gruesome and gory than even like the the first one is. Yeah, um, yeah. Like like the the opening, obviously we mentioned like the the literally the the death at the stab premiere where you're watching what looks like a parody of the first scream and a woman being killed at it. Like that's obviously a crazy idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then um, as this movie progresses, they started adding in because the movie was so popular with teens. They started adding in sort of like teen cast members like Sarah Michelle Geller from Buffy. Right. Uh, is in this as a sorority sister who gets killed while she's flipping through the TV channels and watching Nosferatu. <laughs> One of my favorite moments is that her friend is jokingly doing the Friday the 13th soundtrack noises over the phone. The or what, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it is, the, but oh, she literally has the, to like, say like, stop doing that. Yes. That thing's awesome. So like that, that stuff's really cool. Um, Again, they're they're just recreating kind of like the opening uh, sequence of the first film with that one um, with her. But she gets like really brutally thrown off the rooftop. Like a lot of the kills are still as clumsy and gruesome as the first one and still hit hard. Like they still have impact. Um, yeah. Oh, to yeah. Them. Definitely. Um, it's just some of the character writing gets a little bit more ridiculous in the second one. And also because the. the Every movie has to find a way for Dewey and Gale to kind of be upset with each other and then yeah. reunite by the end of the movie. Like every single one has to have that. Yeah, happen, which I think which was is just supposed like, to eventually become like a satirical element of the franchise itself. But I will say yeah. it gets a little tiresome just because it's like, you know, it is the same thing over and over again. Um, and they are playing with it, but it still is that. You can't really escape it. Um yeah, but I, 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 there are some moments where the repetition does work for me. Like I do mm-hmm. love, again, the sequence of Sydney being drawn to answer the phone yep. and she just naturally like walks over to it and picks it up and the killer is on the other end and attacks her boyfriend and she's looking at him wounded and like the Twin Peaks alarms are going off. It's like, oh my God, it's happening again. Yeah, it's a deja really, vu. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. I think the, uh, the scene with him in the cafeteria is one of the craziest weirdest things i've ever seen tonally did you it's crazy. I, I, I see i i don't know how i feel about it <laughs> like i i watch it and i i can 
I can read that I think Wes is having a good time with it, obviously. But Wes it doesn't, is getting really playful with this whole movie, oh, honestly. Yeah, the second really one. playful. Um, and I appreciate that. I really do. I just think that when it comes to like Sid's reaction, I don't think that she would react that way to like what he's doing right. in the middle of public everyone's eyes are on them he's doing something incredibly embarrassing uh and yeah he's he the boy the boyfriend literally stands up and sings i think i love you the whole thing but he's serenading her <laughs> he's serenading her like the scene literally of tom cruise and top gun um, yeah. doing it <laughs> yeah and, and it's his way of like convincing her that that he really cares about her and then he gives her his like frat boy necklace which i did i like the frat boy necklace thing i think that was a really good touch i just i don't did, know did, did, did you catch it did you catch the detail that in the sequel she's still wearing it yeah i thought that was great because uh it's one of the like only sincere connections that she has by that point and so it's nice for her to like walk around and you can tell that she in the third one she kind of like remembers him fondly they they don't really mention it but she does a lot of scenes where she's like as she's talking she's holding the necklace almost as if it's like a unconscious mannerism or something like that yeah um, yeah I, I honestly think craven just couldn't hold himself back because jerry o'connell <laughs> the actor who is like an incredible like um he's good uh, yeah. just he's he's just like he, he's got one of those faces man mm-hmm. where you're just like this guy is in like a shitty 2000s bro comedy yeah he's a frat, he's he's a frat boy look like crazy yeah he, he looks exactly yeah. like that um, um but yeah and just very very uh funny to have him the year after he was in Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise, like do the Tom Cruise Top Gun thing at the same time. I think they just literally couldn't stop themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, I think some of it's funny. It's just that I think it goes on a little too long. And I do think that Sid's reaction to it just doesn't read to me as Sid's character. Um, yeah, I like the initial thought of it. I think it is funny. Uh, and, and bringing it into this kind of like college sphere, this frat boy sphere is, is a, is a funny (laughs) idea. So, yeah, well, and I, I, I like the way that his the, the, it ends up, you know, working out for him where like, you know, she does end up, you know, she obviously she has so fucking sincere. trust issues like anybody would. And and he plays it like completely like, you know, how can you not trust me? Yeah. And, and he ends up obviously not being um, the killer. And even though apparently he originally was supposed to be, which I don't know how that would have worked, <laughs> yeah, that, wonder, that version of it. He, I wonder if they would have like done a very similar thing to what what billy said but they just make that the joke almost like it's a rehash of the first one again it's like this is just what these do right maybe they would have done something <laughs> like that i don't know but yeah i do like what, um, that they leaned into a more just unhinged crazy chaotic ending that they do but uh yeah i mean i i, I like that it doesn't end up being the boyfriend because you get that great sequence of him like being sort of like crucified on the theatrical stage yeah. and she she kind of knows that her lack of trust in him is actually basically what's going to result in in his death and things like that yeah but like I you also, also are like completely sympathetic with her experience having to relive all of this stuff again and and not only that have such 
crazy chaos surrounding it. Like not only Gail still trying to get the scoop, but also other reporters now in on there, there being a whole crazed fan culture around it with like the fact that there's a movie. And I love in the first movie, she says something along the lines of like knowing my luck, if they made this into a movie, I'd be played by Tori Spelling. (laughs) And they actually did get Tori Spelling to play her in the parody version of this, where they do a recreation of the scene with her and Billy, but it's Luke Wilson as Billy. (laughs) It's so good. Dude, Luke Wilson with the with his like uh, with the, the hair, bangs. the parted hair. Yeah. The, oh my <laughs> yeah. god! And he's he's doing like his like macho. That's the way the cookie voice. crumbles, Sid. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Sid. <laughs> like, oh my god, I was losing my mind. Me and my brother Shane are huge fans of Luke Wilson, particularly for uh, old school. We just think he's a really good comedic actor, and to yeah. to, to see him incorporated with comedy, honestly, um, within this horror. Yeah, movie, it, it basically very funny. looks like an SNL parody of like the first movie almost that they're watching. That is what, yeah, it feels exactly like what you'd see on SNL that week. Um, very funny. Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah. And then Randy seeing that clip and going, I'll wait for video. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I just like that. Um, Craven still found a lot of different ways to, um, to get the sort of um, the thing that we were talking about a little bit in the first one, like sort of the, the focus on the construction and the movie making in, into it. Like I, I do like that, like David Warner as her drama teacher is like trying to convince her to, um, you know, keep doing the, the, uh, Essacles Greek tragedy that she is doing or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is that she's doing. Yeah. And, Cassandra, um, I think or something. Yeah, and she's like, you know, the murders in the movie, they're a little distracting. Like, you know, I'm not all here right now. And he's like, you use your pain and your trauma. Use it for your art. And she was like, she saw it all coming. The war, the murder, the madness. And she embraced her cursed fate. And then you watch her, <laughs> so like, good. as an artist, like, on stage. Like, you know, the music and the lightning and the stage work and, you know, she's she's actually kind of partaking in the construction of all of these elements now. And she's like fate's vengeful eye on me as she sees Ghostface in costumes all around her, actually terrified her fear and, you know, her experiences actually like infecting her performance and her art and everything like that. Like that stuff is all I think really strong. Yeah. And when 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 Craven gets a chance to like flex with the the subjective psychological filmmaking he gets to do there. He does another great one, for example, in the third one, which is one of my favorite sequences in any of the movies. And I wish that there was more of it. And the third one would be a better movie if there was more of it. But the sequence, for example, in the third one where she, the she's on the Hollywood recreated set of Woodsboro. Yeah. The first one. And she's, yeah. And she's literally in like a, a Hollywood set version of her own house. Yeah. And she, she is being chased through it by the killer and it's not quite like she's getting all these sort of, you know, remember she's, she's remembering all of the these layout. Uh, things that happened and the, yeah, the way that she uses the layout, she literally reuses the whole fake lock thing with her doors because she knows that it works. And then there's a part where she also, she's so convinced that she's in her house. She tries to run through a door yep, to the and attic or it something. totally collapses and like there's actually like nothing there and it just leads to the the bottom set because it's not a full house it's a set yeah and yeah like that kind of stuff where she is just being 
you know, she's completely lost the thread on like what's her life and what is a movie version of her life. Yeah. And like that, whenever Craven gets to do stuff like that in this series, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of my favorite images from that whole recreation is when she's just, I think it's even before Ghostface starts attacking her is she's just walking around and she goes and she sees the garage and they've already put like the blood and all of that over where Rose McGowan's character is supposed to die. And oh so it's yeah, just when this, she has to see the recreation yeah. of like where her best friend died. Yeah, yeah, so she doesn't, and she doesn't see the body because it's just the blood that's left. So it it is kind of almost like she's looking at the aftermath of the real crime scene. And I thought that that was a really yeah. good image as well. Um, and I, and I like the, the the image of like when she does go through that that door. And you were mentioning that Ghostface like kind of falls off that it turns into like a very movie studio stunt where Ghostface yes. falls and falls onto the bed mattress or whatever. Like that's legitimately the stunt that you'd be watching. So I thought that that was pretty cool too. He, he does find yeah, some as, really as, nice as, as the movies went on, um, you could tell that Craven was getting to flex a little bit yeah. because basically each one doubled the budget of the previous one. Oh wow. So even the third one had more money than, the yeah, the, the third one was shot on like 40 million or something. It was absolutely oh, wow. the most expensive one. I although I'm I'm convinced he spent half of it on the huge explosion in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, cuz cuz you know, obviously like the, the 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 second one you can you can tell is a little bit more expensive just because of the amount of more like locations that they have. Yeah. Like they they, they have the big school, but then like the, you know, the he doesn't need to just yeah, and he doesn't need to just have the entire last section take place in like a house, mm-hmm. like the like the the set pieces that eventually happen in this. Like, there's the one on the courtyard where Randy gets killed, where uh, he says that his favorite scary movie is Showgirls, <laughs> and. I had to. I I was wondering if he was shitting on Showgirls or if he was just saying that that movie is genuinely very scary. Yeah, I, um, I am gonna. But hope Randy, because I like Randy, I'm, that he's a you're good gonna catch boy. these fists, Randy. Yeah, if you were saying something bad about Showgirls, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna find out Jamie Kennedy's email and I'm gonna ask. Yeah, we're gonna ask him. I'm gonna be like, if anyone hey, knows him, <laughs> you you were Randy, and I think you had the best mindset. Did he like Showgirls? Yes or no? And he. If it's not a yes, then we gotta we gotta reevaluate this yeah. entire thing. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna kill Randy again. Yeah, he just, um, if, if Ran- let's say this, if Randy doesn't like Showgirls, <laughs> he absolutely deserved to die the way he does in this movie. That's what I'll say. Yes, which which is pretty brutally. I, I do love that he asks the killer if uh, his favorite is the super shitty. Uh, Splatter University. Oh yeah, which which is a movie that when I definitely when I watched this as a kid, I had no idea what that was. And Splatter right. University is only a film that I watched in like the last year or two, hunting through the Vinegar Syndrome mm. uh, catalog. And man, that is like a movie that like no one has seen, and <laughs> probably rightfully so because it's pretty bad. I love that. So I think Randy was trying to be shitty to him. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do love that he names off like. Uh, He's starting to name off the high school ones, and he's like, but that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with graduation day, final exam. And he starts naming off all the college slashers yes. to the killer. That was <laughs> that was a really great Randy moment. Um, I also really like just the way that the, the Randy scene, um, the death scene is filmed in general, not necessarily his his death itself, mm-hmm. but just the the 
the the tension and the suspense that you feel as he's looking yeah, around. Yeah, Gale and Dewey like tackling everyone that in the immediate vicinity <laughs> who has a phone. Yeah. And and just like the open space that he's in and somehow the way that Craven is directing it and editing it all these shots together makes you feel like it's a much inc- more enclosed space than it is because he's just in an open field, but you still feel like at any moment this guy could could be killed. Um yeah. And it's strange because he's in the middle of public. Like you shouldn't feel this way. Like the killer nine times out of 10 has not killed anybody in front of people. Cause he doesn't want to get caught. Yeah, daylight in public. Like it's like, how is he going to get away with, uh, yeah. so, but, but he <laughs> finds a way. This. And then I, I will say, I think it's a smart idea to take out Randy in that moment because he is a beloved character. So I think you really feel the impact when he dies. Like they, I do. They definitely wanted to increase the stakes because they were like, look, we don't think you know, we don't want people to think that like every character from the last movie it's is going to be okay. because they're fan yeah. favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do like the idea actually of Randy, the horror expert getting killed. I think that that is, is something that's interesting. I just, I just don't like the, the quickness of it because it is Randy. Um, and I just felt like he was a fairly important yeah, people, character. People hated this, by the way. Uh, Craven like got this. like got got like hate mail about it, like crazy. Yeah. that they that he killed that. Well, also just the fact that he killed Randy in general. <laughs> right, right. That I, that I think is is too far. I think you'd have to expect that some of these beloved characters are going to die in the sequel. But I, I just think mm-hmm. that it was very. Um, I love the lead up. I just don't necessarily love the execution when it finally the way happens. that he's like pulled into the van and it's just like. Uh, shaking. Yeah, yeah. I just, I was like, I think Randy deserves a little more of a visceral, crazy, cool death. Like, uh, I think he deserved a garage kill level, uh, garage level kill, you know? Um, but it, it is what it is. And I still think that taking him out that suddenly and quickly does kind of rip your heart out a little bit. And I think that's good. So. Yeah, I, I definitely think it has the shock effect that they were looking for, which is that to yeah. be like, you know, the the original characters are fair game really brutally. I think that's kind of like the the intent of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would have been nice to see him get his, you know, get a get a head smash or get something or like fight <laughs> get, a little. get something big like 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 that cop, that cop in this movie gets the most gruesome death of like the entire series for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like Randy deserved to have a fighting chance like the rest of them do. Like even um uh, when Rose dies in the first one, like she's throwing the freezer door at the guy, throwing beer bottles at him. Like she's, yeah, she's right. putting up a fight yeah. with Randy's just like, Oh, Scoopy in the van. You're fucking dead. Goodbye. And I, I, I just think that he doesn't deserve that, but the idea of him dying is good. Yeah. And, and the shot when they do open up the van and they find him all cut up, yeah, like that stuff good. is really, that stuff's really nasty. Like and I, I love blood the, out of his uh, mouth. It's Jamie Kennedy does I, I not lo- look recognizable. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the the pans and tilts where it goes from like his hand, bloody hand on the phone up to his face, up to like the driver's seat where they can see yeah. like the killer was there and the doors open and everything like that. Like just, you know, very sort of economically uh, filmed stuff like that. Yeah, agreed. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they, they, in the second one, they, they try to throw in more of like the cynical entertainment industry by bringing back uh, Lee Schreiber, who was briefly in the first movie as Cotton Weary, yeah. who is the uh, the guy who uh, Sid thinks because he was having an affair with her mother is the one who um, 
uh, killed her, but ends up being kind of proven innocent and uh, leave. Uh, you got to give a little bit of credit. I mean, you got to give credit to all of these movies on the casting in general. I think like they were they were finding some of these actors before they hit it big. Like they, yeah. they kind of knew what they had when they were looking at some of these younger actors. Um, and uh, yeah, leave leave is quite good and quite scary as like just a character who's not a killer, but someone who is scary because he is just very selfish and business oriented in a way. Yeah. And he just, he start he spends half and the movie just chasing Sid down, trying to get her on prime time with him so that they can both be famous I, and make money. <laughs> I do like his initial, uh, like it, kind of his surface level personality that they give off because we know of him in the first one as like the possible killer and he doesn't have a lot of lines. So your, your brain is just kind of left with thinking that about him, even after you see all the chaos at the end, cause it doesn't deal with him a lot. Mm-hmm. But with this one, they start to at least initially have him be kind of kind, like, like they go up to like when Gail goes up to Sid for the first time and it's like, we're going to get an interview with you and cotton cotton thinks that she's agreed to that and didn't want it any yeah. other way. Um, so initially you think, okay, maybe this guy's kind of trustworthy, whatever. But then as it goes, his, his, uh, how people are viewing him, his reputation is f- bothering him to a point where he's becoming angry and, and somewhat violent in a way. Um, and I like that that is slowly dished out so that they can start to create kind of like a, I guess it's a red herring, like, cause he doesn't end up being the killer, but mm-hmm. the movie tries to imply that he could be, it does it in a way where I feel like it's probably too obvious for you to really think that in this kind of a film. But, um, yeah, but I, I do the, the, at least the, like the fact that he's like that. chasing her through the library being like Sidney Prescott, everyone's favorite victim. And like, and like you know, grabbing he's her like stuff. everyone thinks I'm a psycho killer. So let me act like I'm a psycho killer <laughs> yeah, in public. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just like it's a little on the nose, but I still think that the uh, the red herring works. Um, and then it, it ends up working really well at the end where he's still kind of sketch, but at the end of the day, not a fucking psychopath. So, um, I do think it works at the end as well where it leads. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, the big sort of climactic set piece of this is actually split in split into like three set pieces, um, (laughs) where they, which is how you can tell they had more money. Um, which is, which is where they, they do one at the school where, um, uh, Gail and Dewey are both trying to look at all the footage that she's been sh- been shooting. I do like the detail of the uh, the fact that her cameraman died in the first one and she has a new cameraman yeah and he re and he reads the in-universe book and is like in this book your last cameraman got fucking killed and that like freaks him out. I definitely like that aspect <laughs> yeah um, yeah. And, and, and I think um, they say some I, line too, where he was just like he got stabbed, or then she says something like he wasn't stabbed, his throat was slit, or something like slit. that. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, that, is that better? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I like that they are watching um, this this footage to see if they can kind of find the killer in it, and then they end up finding that the killer has actually shot the murder sequences himself, right? Which is a little <laughs> clever bit of, uh, of of work, and then it also there's a scare where they're watching the the tape and they get a shot of them they're watching themselves on the tv which i don't think makes any sense by that current technology but (laughs) i just accepted it as like a like a scary moment (laughs) (laughs) um really okay craven that's fine yeah well because it kicks off 
like what is, in my opinion, one of the great 90s steady cam suspense tracking sequences, probably up there with Carlito's Way subway station, which I think mm. is my favorite. Um, like all that use of like amazing anamorphic negative space and all the different uses of the geography as he's like going up and down the escalator and pulling his gun and waiting for a guy to get closer to the foreground and that kind of stuff. Like that's one of my favorite sequences um, of the nineties in general. And this film Craven gets a chance to basically do it himself, but inside a sound booth where he gets to incorporate sound design into it mm-hmm. where she can, Gail can see the killer through the, gl- the glass as he's like coming into the studio area and looking for her and great wides of her just like narrowly avoiding him and her in half the frame in the foreground and he's him in the, the other half in the background. Around. Yeah. And, and then also just being completely soundproof as Dewey is on the other side of the glass being like, Hey Gail, what the fuck is going on? And she turns around and can't hear him pounding or can't hear him saying anything. And then he just gets fucking stabbed in the back again. Yeah. And you can't hear her, um, the screams. You can't hear her scream or him scream. You literally yeah, are just it, watching this thing and you can't do anything about it. Craven does this awesome thing where he just sets the camera in the room that isn't where the audio or action is coming. So every time yes. he switches it back, like even when you're when David is being killed and you're on that side to see Courtney scream, you can no longer hear her because you're on that side and then same thing when it flips back and forth. So I, I thought that that yeah. was great too. I also really like clever the, uh, use of that. The just the blood gag in general because whatever David Arquette had in his mouth was a big old blood pack because as soon as he gets stabbed yes, it just huge <laughs> just goes all over the uh, the clear window so it, it's it's really visceral and I think that the use of sound is a really good thing too because it's it, it adds like a in my opinion it adds like an, a layer of an extra layer of sadness to it because you know that these characters really uh, love each other in some weird way and um And I think the lack of being able to hear them even scream is kind of something like inhumane in a way. Mm -hmm. Like there's just such a there's no way to communicate right now as Dewey's dying or supposedly dying. So, yeah, really, really good sequence. This is one of my favorites in the movie, too. Yeah, which then moves directly into the cop car set piece, which is also fucking sick. Oh, yeah. Um, Which is which is. uh, Sydney and her friend in the backseat of the cop car being driven around uh, for protection. And then uh, Ghostface literally like kind of like pulls up and literally starts pulling the cops like out of the car, slitting their throats, <laughs> smashing their faces into the windshield, just fucking them up like yeah. crazy. Um, is that the and one then where, he gets is in the car where the cop eventually gets on top of the car. Yes, okay, okay, because yeah. there's 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 this amazing geographical detail where the the killer wants to get in, but he's blocked off by kind of like that that sort of like grate that's meant to separate the people in the back of the cop car from the front of the cop car, so he can't reach right. them. Um, so what he does is he just gets in the car and starts driving away with them. Yep. But the one cop lives, jumps on the top of the car, <laughs> and as the killer is, Ghostface is driving a car swerving. It's like action movie shit. Yeah, it is. While he's swerving with a cop on top of his car, and he he ends up losing control and crashing. And as he crashes, like Final Destination style, a giant steel pole goes through the fucking cop's head and through the windshield of the car. Mm-hmm. 
and it is disgusting. You see it. Yeah. The cop is like literally like twitching with a pole through his head. Yeah. And the got- ghost face killer is also, he smashes his head so hard against the steering wheel. He goes unconscious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, which leads to so a really So then the two cool- girls are just sitting in the back of the car. <laughs> yeah. And it leads to a really cool suspense sequence that you haven't really seen yet from like a knocked out ghost face. So that was kind of cool because he's such an unexpected character. So, you know, when they're climbing over him, you really do have that feeling of, like he can get up at any moment and just start stabbing them. So I, I do think they incorporate how you view Ghostface well in that. Sus- that moment is so sequence. tense, and yeah. but then also you get the way the camera focuses on the mask. You get like the desire she has to also just like quickly pull the mask off too, yeah. and like see who it is, like right then and there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and also speaking just briefly on that cop shot as well. I even think there's parts like he's got the pull through his head and he's doing the twitching or whatever. There's there's. Uh, little shades or or shards of glass that are like in his skin too uh, as he's twitching which makes you think like oddly enough too the way that it opens up and the way that it's like uh, uh, cracked like the windshield it almost makes it look like fencing so it looks like it's been imprinted in in his face in certain moments too it's just like it's a Mm -hmm. really visceral and gross kill and and I like that it's kind of funny that you're right uh a random cop gets that kill. But, um, but anyway, yeah, that, that yeah. suspense <laughs> sequence is really good too. But yeah, the actual suspense filmmaking is like next level as like, that's only half the set piece. The other half of the set piece is literally like the grate has been partially open. So Sydney has to like crawl through it and crawl into the passenger seat and then over the driver's seat and through the driver's window yeah. over top of his body. And they can, she can like hear his, his breathing while he's unconscious and like, and then her friend you know, has it's to do really, the same really, thing. really, yeah, and then the girl has to repeat it, which is even just makes it even more tense. Yeah, um, yeah, that 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 stuff's all really, really um, strong, and eventually leads to the final sequence, which takes place um, on the stage, where they literally have like the music for the show playing through the speakers, and the stage has been shet, set. The killer is like shining a spotlight oh, yeah. on her, and is like dropping production design on her. Well, it's like this big show. I just realized too that at the end of that suspense sequence uh, with um, Sid and her friend. When they leave together, the reason that Sid uh, leaves her friend event- and unfortunately to die, um, not that she would have known that, of course, but uh, she goes back because she's uh, once again initially curious as to who it is. So she goes back, leaves her for a brief moment, and that's when Ghostface comes behind her friend and kills her. Yeah, well, that that I thought yeah. was an interesting thought too. But um, but yeah, th- this uh, this production. Uh, the stage production sequence is uh, like pretty bizarre. Honestly, it, it goes to yeah, so kind many, of kind of weird. Yeah, it's a little strange. I think just because it gets, um, I think it works, but I do think that it loses a little bit of its like sincere slasher horror elements just because you start to get into this uh, um, weird stage stunt work where it's like these fake bricks falling over on top of the killer uh as if it that would do much (laughs) like and and um it's just it gets a little strange but i think that him working within these like artificial sets is still a, a really fun commentary um and the overall like double triple twist whatever you want to call it is so over the top and silly that at this point and silly like the acting is silly too um not even talking about oliphant but uh um oh, who's the yeah timothy the oliphant who, who 
uh, Lori Metcalf is playing yeah, Metcalf. Uh, Gail, Gail, like 2.0 or whatever she's supposed yeah, to be playing. Dude, her shot where she, she, when she does the big reveal after Timothy has his moment um, where it's just like the, it's the open door. And, and she just has the gun and she just kind of like pops out with her wide eye, weird psycho look. I yeah. lose my mind. Like, I think it's <laughs> legitimately hilarious. And I don't know. She's if, so funny. I think it's supposed to I, be I, like it, it has. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I, I, I obviously know that he's playing with with satirical elements here. I'm not <laughs> not that mm-hmm. stupid, but I, I just feel like some of her silliness is. Like, I, I think maybe it's it's because of what the twist is, that it's Billy's mom. And so you add that yeah. to the silliness is what makes me feel like it's slightly disconnected. But then I look at yeah, Matthew Lillard I feel and like he's the sequence just too, doesn't, so I just don't know what, I don't yeah. know what it is for me, to be honest. It, exactly. Um, I, I, I think, I think <clears> it's just that it, for me, I don't know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't feel as planned. It feels like they were kind of like, yeah. you know, it feels like they did multiple rewrites to get to this twist. <laughs> and they they, they 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 chose the one, the most ridiculous one that they could think of because they knew that everyone was kind of ex- expecting, expecting everything twist. else. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like it's just less layered throughout the film like yeah, when, when when they like the, the way that they had you constantly predicting billy to right. kind of misdirect you a little bit there's less of that like timothy is hardly in the movie uh metcalf is hardly in the movie and i feel like it just kind of comes out of nowhere in a weird way that doesn't quite get as i don't know i guess quite as scary to me yeah. as the first one does it, it just doesn't feel as natural you can right. you can you can tell that it feels a little contrived you know, for sure yeah uh, but I do but like Timothy's, that being said, like, I like his initial motive though. Like his, his whole thing, which is hilarious. He's like, he's I, got, I've got my whole, I've got my whole defense planned out. I'm going to blame the movies. Yeah. It's genius. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he's like saying that he's going to be almost like, this is the, the actual trial is going to be his movie. And he's essentially like the director yeah. and the leader and the writer of it and all of that. And he's going to be the most popular serial killer. And, you know, and, and in a way, be a, a movie star in his own right so that kind of shit i thought was like really funny i love that he also mentions he's like i'm gonna get dershowitz as a lawyer and hire like or cochran from or the oj trial yeah yeah i was i was losing the, my mind on that shit i thought that was very funny so um th- that's that's where it started working for me i'm like all right if you're just gonna go like crazy silly i think that's the way you should probably go for the sequel yeah so. I, I i i think that they leaned into the silliness intentionally enough that this still ends up you know like like kind of working for me yeah um even even the whole thing with with billy's mom because they're literally referencing the opening of the first film with the whole mrs Voorhees was the original killer yeah so now you know it's, it's miss loomis <laughs> right <laughs> which is obviously even our you know the name loomis is just even a reference to halloween in the first place mm-hmm. so like you know it's it, 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 it's a little contrived but definitely um you know, still, still fun to watch, uh, especially Lori Metcalf's performance, which yeah. is like insane. Like she's, she's, her, she's going super wide eyed. Yep. And I love that love when it. she's talking about, um, about her motive, um, she's literally just like, you know, his, his doesn't work. She literally shoots Tim, Timothy and goes, you know, she was, he was just a means to an end. I found him on some psycho killer forum or whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> the fuck. Uh, and, uh, 
She's like the blame the movies motive. That guy was out of his mind. I'm not out of my mind, though. <laughs> and and she says, no, I'm sane. Mine's just a good old fashioned revenge. Yeah. You know, you killed my son. I'm going to kill you. I can't think of anything more rational. And, you know, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, line as well. And then, yeah, then you get like a like a huge like, you know, you get even more kind of follow ups of who's shooting who she shoots. Timothy uh, uh, some, uh, uh, Timothy, I think shoots Gail by accident during that shootout. And then cotton eventually comes in just kind of hanging around the periphery of the entire movie and gets the chance with the gun to maybe take out, uh, Lori Metcalf's, uh, playing Billy's mother and redeem himself. <laughs> And redeem himself, but only if Sid <laughs> will go on Diane Sawyer with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Although and, I will say at the and, end, I think, wasn't that, didn't that end up being like a ploy for the mother? Because at the end, Sid just kind of gives him the stardom and he's like, okay, cool. Well, I, I think I think it's kind of left ambiguous whether he was actually doing that for that reason mm. or whether he kind of meant it. And I think that she just yeah, I could says, see that. I'll give, I'll give you your 15 minutes. Like, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, you, know, I could see you, that. you, you tech technically saved the day. It's definitely, a, <laughs> even though you uh, might not have had the best, uh, the best motivation for doing so. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely a troubled character. It's not a, it's not a easy wrap up for him by this end. I mean, it is. It, yeah, I, I would agree. I think that there is probably an element of him that might not necessarily help if he didn't get, or he didn't think he was going to get what he wanted. So I, I could I could see that. Well, because he waits so long. He's literally like, I bet you Diane Sawyer interview looking good right now. And then she, he doesn't shoot until she says, consider it done. Right, right. And then and then immediately he acts. Whereas the entire time he was he, he was kind of like, you know, she's making some good points. Yeah. You know? and Maybe I, do, I could get big with her. And, and, and at the <laughs> end of the day, I do kind of like that ambiguous nature of it in a sense like it, uh, it's it could be even a little bit of both i imagine that he probably would save sid but i imagine that he saw this opportunity in this moment and went well also i could get something out of it <laughs> so I, I i do yeah i think that that ending is pretty decent for his character yeah, and, and, and even some of the, throughout that sequence, the use of, like, the actual set, like when Sid, the, the, the peephole shot of Laurie Metcalf looking through the door as Sid grabs the axe and starts, like, dropping, like, the lighting setups on her and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Like, there's, there, there, there's still some cool sort of textual stuff happening here where it's like, you know, Sid is taking control of the stage and the production and, you know, things like that and trying to, you know, get a little bit of... Uh, control back and then giving cotton uh the spotlight as a hero even if you know uh it's not as white in shining armor as he's about to tell the story yeah um you know that that still definitely fits this whole idea of you know this this violence as a spectacle of entertainment that people kind of take in mm -hmm. and then the movie ends on a Sugar Ray credit song, <laughs> dating it to the year 1997 eternally. <laughs> Love it. Not yeah, it, not not like the uh, the third one doesn't date itself at all with uh, with, awesome with, 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 with an opening and closing Creed. <laughs> 
I, I mean, I enjoyed every moment of that. But uh, yeah, it doesn't one of, doesn't one of my favorite touches is 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 that it's a perfect recreation. We talked about it before. A perfect recreation of Sidney Prescott's childhood home, right? But and there's it, a creed. it has a Creed poster in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember. I was like, was there a Creed poster in the 1996 house? I can't. I, I don't remember. think so. I don't think there was. I feel like I would have noticed. I'm pretty sure it's a joke yeah. <laughs> about how they do like movie tie-in stuff yeah, like that. I think I think so too because it's like I don't remember Sydney being a huge Scott Stapp fan. <laughs> no, the, the, the third one I want to give it some credit is um, because yeah maybe we should do reductive rating round on the yeah, second four one. Out of five uh, second for one me gets on that one. Yeah, it kind of gets a, a bit of a lower four for me, but still there, yeah. still definitely good enough. The the set piece is super fucking strong, um, and even though it gets ridiculous, it gets ridiculous in a way that's still fun and kind of reminds me of like a big giallo twist ending or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, you know, Craven really, really went off with the, uh, with the, uh, the the sequencing even if it you know is doesn't quite have the uh the perfect merging of content and in form that the that that the first one have yeah you know the violence as entertainment stuff is all you know um still there and they find ways to stage and construct sequences to kind of like highlight that a little bit um and uh they continue that honestly um into the third one. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the third one actually might have stronger violence as entertainment elements. I think what the third one lacks is it doesn't quite have the, the elegant, gruesome set piece impact, honestly, that the other two have. Yeah. I think that's I, the only thing that's really holding it back for me I'll is that it just, I also feel like the, uh, the satirical elements get a little bit, less impactful they, they, they go a little far <laughs> yeah well it's almost like i mean it, strangely enough the way that the like procedural of it is i just don't find all that that interesting um mm. compared to the like you like a, you, you 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 don't you don't care as much about like the whodunit aspect aspect I, gu I guess it's it's also like uh it, they have a lot of scenes i mean they have them in in all the movies but they have a lot more scenes i found in the third one of like gail and dewey just doing their like figuring it out thing and figuring out their relationship time, thing well, well their which, relationship by the way, mixed with the like who's doing this who's murdering oh who. who's doing it right like actually the investigating of the of the crew um in a sense so that's true i just yeah. um I don't know. I felt like it was a little drier this time around overall. Uh, I felt like the satirical elements were still making appearances, but it didn't feel like subtextually every scene had those elements like the first and most mm -hmm. of the second one does. Um, I just felt like it, I don't know. I just felt like it was a little uh, drier for some reason. Um, I'm not I'm not mm. sure entirely i could I, I could see that for for me i think the main issue is just that it was very clearly and we can get into a little bit of it here but like essentially um they found themselves in trouble when they were working on this film with uh the fact that the columbine shooting had just happened mm. Um, and it renewed interest in the idea of sort of violent video games and movies right you know triggering young serial killers in America or whatever they, they were talking about. And obviously the films had very playfully been kind of messing with that idea and kind of how ludicrous it is. And the studio anyway, and probably the Weinsteins, um, <laughs> they got, they got cold, cold feet about it. And they said that, you know, they, they 
were kind of bugging Williamson about it. And Williamson wrote like a 30 page treatment or whatever he wrote, but he was getting bugged and he was busy developing some TV show. And he basically just said like, fuck it. I don't want to take these notes anymore. Uh, so they hired this Aaron Kruger guy who got started writing some pretty cool, like 90 style thrillers, like things like reindeer games and stuff. Um, okay. But is probably most famous for writing most of the Michael Bay Transformer sequels. <laughs> <laughs> what a king. Um, and he he had a tough job, which was he was joining this production, looking at the treatment, and also you know um, basically having to take notes from both executives and Craven yeah. because Craven was having none of it. Craven was going, "What do you mean tone down the fucking violence?" Which was a note that he got. They said, "Up <laughs> the comedy satire, reduce." the violence it's the final and, thing uh, of a trilogy <laughs> yeah craven craven basically was like well fuck you guys like yeah, like, like high? we're if we're making a scream film this is what we're gonna do and craven did i think eventually end up losing that battle not in the filming he lost it i think in the editing process the mpaa mm. did end up getting its claws all over this which is why uh, I think a lot of the violence feels very muted um, in this film and it was kind of an issue but as a result Craven was more involved in the writing process than on previous films because he literally had the screenwriter's ear and they were basically kind of co-writing the film together while both receiving harsh notes from the the execs basically telling them to do what they wanted which is why you get a lot of like Craven's personal uh sort of isms with Hollywood kind of all throughout the film like the director who that stuff um, I liked a lot <laughs> The, the director who is like obviously upset that he he can't just make a, he has to make a scary movie not just a love story you get the the elements thrown in for stuff that happened during scream 2 where they are literally they have three different scripts so that they don't know you know uh so they can't spoil online who the killer is going to be the killers um, following one of the scripts, which is killers following one of the scripts, but they don't know which one, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like a cool little uh, thing that's happening. And even just the whole stuff with 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 setting it in Hollywood. There's so many cool stuff that he gets to do out of that. Like the girl who is like trying not to get killed and she's standing in the giant pile of ghost face costumes. And one of them like literally starts moving and stuff like yeah. that. Like that's cool. Uh, the, the cold open in the third one is not as strong as the other two. The one uh, thing even though I, I do like leave. Oh, sorry. I was, I, the one thing I do like about the cold open is the, um, the voice changer that they implement in this. And that's that the killer yeah. now can just be anybody really just anyone's voice. Yeah. Thought, really freaks people out. Yeah. I thought that that was cool. Uh, obviously the, the technology doesn't make any sense, but like who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> yeah, and, no, uh, exactly. It just adds this element of like, it, it, you know, it, it makes it so that he can, that's, I think that is one it's part movie of the magic, whodunit. Baby. It's, it's literally the, the killer is doing movie magic shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the one one of the elements of the whodunit in this that I did really like. Um, because every time that someone was on the phone with somebody and you never saw the actual face of the person on the other line, you could start to think, oh, is this ghost face just fucking with people? That kind of thing. So th that stuff yeah. I thought was really good. It, it created extra red herrings here and there. So that was that was well done. I thought that that was good. Um yeah, and the way it's the way it's implemented in the opening is is pretty cool with the the killer pretending to be Cotton to his girlfriend so it freaks the girlfriend out then when Cotton actually gets back to his his uh his home after doing his talk show that he now has called 100% Cotton, which is a great joke. Yeah. Um <laughs> 
he, uh, the, the girlfriend's like swinging at him thinking he's the killer and then he can't, you know, yell at her to like look behind her when the killer actually comes in and stabs her and then stabs him. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a, again, a decently constructed little set piece. It's just not as impactful still, you know, yeah. it's just, it's, it's just weird. It feels just a little bit more muted than you think that, um, you would expect, even though it still has, you know, the the slow walking down the hallways and the steady cam shots and the nice suspense strings and uh, even great little joke moments like the killer uh, playing Creed. Yeah. <laughs> the killer just starts blasting Creed at one point <laughs> in, the, in the house. That's good. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that I, I think I think the Hollywood stuff is the stuff that is the. Um, really the, the the strongest about this. You can tell yeah. that Craven put a lot of his own time, you know, working with producers now for as many years as he had into this. They literally have Roger Corman make a cameo oh, um, yeah. in the, um, in the, the sequence where they're on the set for stab three return to Woodsboro, where they have an entire recreation of the Woodsboro set, but now in, in LA, um, and, uh, literally the director and his producers. And by the way, we we said last week where was Lance Henriksen in yeah. um there he is. in uh, Extreme Prejudice here he is baby in Scream Three what a great little you know tiny little role that I almost wish there was more of him oh I know he's so um, good at playing a fucking dirtbag <laughs> yeah and and, and, and literally they're sitting there going okay so you know uh, <laughs> Cotton was about to film his cameo appearance his shitty death for stab three and i love that he's even on the phone with his agent like being like they can't write me a bigger fucking role than what like a, a page and then i die like whatever fuck yeah you. And, and then uh, he goes to die in the first scene <laughs> and then he goes to die in the first scene yeah amazing and then um <laughs> um they even have the the producers telling the director Roman um, violence in cinema is a big deal right now. Roman with Roger <laughs> Corman, like the one standing right there next to him. Yeah. And you know, they're and they were like, do we even know that cotton's death was related to this? He was making a movie called stab. <laughs> yeah. he, and, was stabbed. he was stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's honestly, you know, there's, there's some solid stuff in here. And mostly because I guess you just wonder like, why it took them so long to get to the Hollywood stuff. Cause it felt like this, this just naturally is a good idea, I guess is, is kind of the thing. You, yeah. I wish it was executed a little stronger, Yeah, but like there is cool stuff and cool ideas with the idea of taking the screen movies, um, to, um, Hollywood and making it also partly about sickos. They literally make a whole thing about, um, you know, that they, they do a, an introduced backstory for the, the trilogy capper about, um, Oh, with Randy, Sydney's mother, Maureen, um, oh, I being see, yeah. an, an exploitation actor and making like shitty little sci-fi and horror films under the producer who's played by Lance Henriksen, who it turns out, you know, actually, basically invited her to a Polanski party where yep. she was probably, uh, assaulted. Um, and to throw that stuff in there, including a line where, um, <laughs> the Lance Henriksen sicko Hollywood producer literally says Hollywood is full of criminals whose careers are flourishing to a guy named Roman. <laughs> um, 
and this movie was executive produced by Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. Like it's just it's it, it, it's an incredible bit of like Craven clearly, like you know he saw the culture that he was involved in making these films yeah. and actually found a way to you know somehow sneak it into this film in a way that's like very cutting actually. Yeah, um, I agree. So that's the stuff that I think really, really works strong uh, about the Hollywood stuff. There's some other stuff in it that I think is a little bit too silly. Like I think some of the cameos are a bit silly, like the Jay and Silent Bob <laughs> that bit one, yeah, and the that, Carrie Fisher bit. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the I mean, I'll say this. The Carrie Fisher bit at least just made me laugh because I really liked her. I slept with George Lucas line and she's not because she's not or playing you, Carrie Fisher. She's playing someone that didn't yes. get the role and Carrie Fisher did get the role. So I thought that that was. Yes, pretty Carrie funny. Fisher did sleep with her director. But yes. It is, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that was very funny. And, and just for Carrie to be in on that joke I thought was uh, was just awesome um and but I agree that it it kind of takes you out of it and especially the Jay and Silent Bob thing that that thing just seems like completely out of left field like we're in a pure comedy now I just did not quite understand why that was necessary but the one cameo um that I that I really do love honestly uh and it's it's not you know, it's nothing compared to his, his first two two parts in the movies. But when Jamie Kennedy pops up as like this, hey, if you're watching this, it's because right. I made my death tape and I knew the trilogy was coming. And I think that that, yes. <laughs> that really goes well with his character. That was a clever way to bring him back. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was great because it's like if any of them would have thought ahead like that and made a tape, it would have been Randy. And it, he's a, it's a very believable cameo. So I think that's why it works for me. And just him reiterating like new rules once again, like we already heard him do anything the, goes the, the first yeah the first one and the second one and now this is the this was what you mean by trilogy and you, you you found yourself in a trilogy yeah yeah so he's like now the rules they're completely upside down anyone you thought was safe gonna die like all that kind of shit and then um the other one that he says that i also really liked uh was it was you're gonna die oh also that the, now because it's the third installment and supposed to be the final installment the killer is gonna be at this superhuman level so the only way to actually kill him is to like explode him or decapitate him or send him to space or yeah. something like cryogenic that. freeze and blow him up <laughs> yeah, which is i think what they do in like jason x and shit like that so it's um Th- those commentaries i i really enjoyed and just getting to see yeah, randy what? again was fun so and and I like them poking fun at themselves a little bit too, because he's like, "Have you found yourself experiencing unexpected backstory exposition?" <laughs> yeah. Is there, is there a lot more dialogue in this version or something like that? Yeah, yeah. it's really it's really good, which is funny because it's it, that is kind of what I was saying when I was just referencing how I wasn't as intrigued with the whodunit aspect as I was in the previous two. Um, Mm -hmm. So when Randy comes up and kind of says a couple of the things that I have minor gripes with, um, it kind of made me forgive them even a little bit. So I I think that Randy's implementation was, was, was good. And I, and I liked his little cameo. Although I, I I do think that they follow, I do wish that they followed through on the anything goes aspect because it does feel like the, the legacy characters were pretty safe in this film. Yeah, they definitely Um, were. Um, which, which I, I think was odd because this felt like I was expecting, I mean, this, this isn't the first time I've seen this, but the first time I was expecting Sid to get through it 
um, because I don't think it's the type of movie where, you know, everyone's going to die. But I was definitely. No, I I actually kind of like the very last ending that they gave her. Like if this was it, if this was over, I kind of like like the very last scene of the movie. Oh, yeah. I love that. (laughs) I actually almost get a little teary eyed. I'm like, oh, I feel good for you. You know, it's just a it's a a big sense of relief that (laughs) she she deserves it. it. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's like just just walking away from an open door like it, it, that is a perfect image for her character. I, I agree. I think that that's yeah, really and, good. And, 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 and how it contrasts with the the opening of her like, you know, completely removing herself from the world and like having a job at like a crisis, women's crisis hotline and, and things like that. Just, yeah, yeah, like like all that all that stuff, the opening and closing stuff for her character, I think, is is decently conceived. Yeah, I don't like I will say this. Uh, I don't like um, her hallucinations with her mother. Oh, oh, of her Those mom. Are bad. Yeah. Like I, I, it's a little on the nose. Yeah, it's really because <laughs> like, I thought it was going to turn into like a more satirical element of it because that is a cliche. But he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He just sincerely has her to see like hallucinations. And, and I, I don't know. I felt like it was really not good um, and out of place. And I didn't. Yeah, like it. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't love the one that happens at the house, but I didn't mind the one that happens at the crime scene when she's seeing the crime scene of yeah. her mother recreated in the house. Just just because yeah. I, I thought in that sequence in particular, it was literally setting up why she was losing track of what's like a movie set and what's reality. I agree. Um, I do like and then and that it's revealed later that Ghostface has actually you know somehow use this technology to uh, capture her mother's voice uh, yeah is in, in, the, top, in the big course, mansion he actually works, he so. actually does it and is the one being her mother in the last set piece so yeah I, I agree with you that in like when it when it first pops up and it's just very sincerely used and not really built up to it's just like like Sydney's trauma quote unquote <laughs> is like all it's doing yeah. um, you know it, it doesn't it doesn't work quite as strongly as it does um the other times that they end up deploying it with like more purpose. Like the body bag is really good. I do like that. Yeah. Well, and, and they set up that, yeah, that, that the killer is literally the one doing the body bag right. thing in the, in the final one too. So it's kind of like, it's a little bit of both. Like the killer is intentionally trying to get this reaction out of her. See, that's um, what it is. It's, it's the, it's the fact that like, cause that, that dives into the whole filmmaking aspect of it. Like it's an actual person inside acting this way, doing this thing, but trying to, kind of right. trick your senses a little bit. Whereas when she's doing it in the house and she's just literally having an hallucination, it's like, w- what are we doing? Like, what are you trying to say besides she's traumatized, which we already know the first two <laughs> movies were directly about that. So it's like, I know she, you know, misses her mom and, and is, is fearful of the fate that she might also have, but to just mm-hmm. literalize it on screen in the third movie when you've never done that before just seems so stupid. So, but I do, I yeah. agree with you that later on, I like the way the killer implements it. So yeah. So maybe yeah, they needed and, um, that to establish it. I still don't like it though. <laughs> Yeah, not 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 my favorite part of the movie. That's for sure. The, the the stuff that I do like about this and that I think is pretty strong. Obviously, we've already talked about it, so we don't need to mention it again. But the the big set recreation sequence is like the strongest part. And I honestly yep. kind of wish they maybe saved it as like the climax for and sure. they like restructured it and like did something bigger with it, where she's like literally doing the whole first movie again, almost. It doesn't make um, a lot of sense through that like they the didn't. big party house and stuff. Like I guess they were just doing yeah, like the old Hollywood thing where it was like here's all these 
these sickos and look what who's behind the entertainment that you know and love but yeah th- th- that stuff doesn't totally work but there is some stuff about it that works for me yeah. which is i i feel like if the i feel like if the kills were ramped up in that sequence i would be more forgiving to it because like yeah, it is i do like the bit was. where they where they go into like the epstein layer and yeah. they like have the two-way mirrors where they're like recording the girls that they are like raping and like yeah. the uh Leads to a good action sequence with Dewey and the girl, and he doesn't save her in time. I thought that was good. Yeah, and also just the the basic idea of like all of these characters hanging around the actors who are playing them in Stab Three and watching them all get killed. <laughs> yeah. Like that's just kind of like a playful idea Definitely. in general. And I, I liked uh, specifically Parker Posey as the the actress who plays Gail in the movie. Oh yeah, she's amazing. She's so great as like Courtney Cox too. And th- when they start teaming up and shit like that <laughs> and trying to investigate together, that shit's hilarious. Yeah, it is. It is very um, funny. They're just so like catty towards each other. So it it leads to some really fun comedic moments with their characters. Yeah, I agree. She was good. Yeah, and, and even 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 Jenny McCarthy, who shows up briefly to play Candy, the girl who's like upset that she's playing the dumb girl who gets yeah. naked and dies in the first scene. And I love that she gets her Hitchcock reference wrong. She says, "We've done the shower thing before." Vertigo. Hello. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's great. I also love that she says something like uh, she starts commenting on um, like the the weird age stuff that happens in Hollywood. And she's just like, I'm 35 and I'm playing a 19 year old. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That stuff was really funny too. So yeah, all the, uh, all the writing when it came to directly satirizing Hollywood mixed with stab and mixed with scream. Very fun. I enjoyed almost all of that. It's just that it's wrapped up in the same formula that we've seen the twice before. And with that aspect, they're not doing too much fresh shit. So I get mm-hmm. a little bored uh, compared to the other ones. Um, yeah, I, I, I think honestly, the big issue is that they made him tone down the violence. I think if yeah. the kills even I think if this movie was the exact same and the kills and sequences were as strong as they are in Scream 2, mm-hmm. I think that this would be probably almost as good. I just think it, it really doesn't have something as strong as the opening or the sound booth set piece or the car set piece. I don't think it has anything in here as strong as those three sequences from the second one. And as a result, it does really, you lose the impact, which is what we were saying about the first one. Mm-hmm was what made it like the fact that that movie is funny and satirical is sort of made actually kind of scary by the fact that he directs the fucking shit out of it. Yeah. And I don't know if it's entirely Craven's fault because Craven's, you know, he, he still milks some stuff out of this, oh, yeah. you know, for every dumb little micro twist in the finale that comes up, the, the Scooby-Doo ass, like secret passageways <laughs> all through the old Hollywood sicko house is like kind of fun. Um, it, but it, it's just, it's very clear that like how often the movie cuts away from the deaths, how often it's just quickly over with, you don't see anything. Thing. Um, you you barely even see aftermaths, really. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's it's very clearly toned down to the point where it, it just just feel dulled a bit. Like I mean, which, you uh, open sucks the first in a movie with Drew Barrymore being gutted, like intestines flying out of her stomach, and she's being hung yeah. from a tree. Like there's just nothing like that at all in the third one. Pers- what did you? I was going to no. ask you. What did you think of? Uh, the explosion because i don't know if i like the explosion <laughs> i think it's too much Here, <laughs> here's the thing about the explosion yeah um this this is ingrained in me as a child uh, yeah a because i remember being too. blown the fuck away by the sequence when i was a child <laughs> me too um <laughs> 
Because <laughs> when um, I rewatched it now, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. It just, it felt silly to me this time. It, it, it does feel really silly and I can't bring myself to dislike it <laughs> because the buildup to it is like the strongest suspense sequence in the film, but it comes sure. out of nowhere yeah. and it's nothing like any of the sequences in the previous films. But and the also whole the, bit, the logistics of it, honestly, is like I don't know how that makes much sense. Like the the timing, no, it, it is the, the, so stupid. Yeah, but in a, in a way that I find hilarious, which gotcha. is like literally they are being faxed <laughs> script pages where the killer is saying, uh, "I'm outside, and if you come outside, I'm going to kill you. But if you stay in here and read this, you know, you will find out who's going to die next." And and obviously, <laughs> all of I, I I do appreciate how smart Dew and Gale are about it, where yeah. they're like, "Well, the killer." says he's outside so he's obviously not outside let's just go outside (laughs) um (laughs) he's a liar and the one guy the one guy runs back in and he's trying to read every fax that's coming through (laughs) and uh they said the killer will give mercy to to who until he uses his lighter to (laughs) read the last bit of text to whoever smells the gas and it ignites the house Uh, blows the whole thing up and it's a huge action movie triple shot explosion it's expensive explosion oh yeah it's Um, big and and, and and I think Craven was just I think stoked about the idea of blowing up like a Hollywood house. <laughs> like, Let's do I it. I think that was it. Yeah, because <laughs> it's just the thing about it is it's like it, granted all of these you know the 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 schemes and whatnot. If you were to really look at every movie with the with the physical logistics of everything, I, I bet it doesn't make entirely. All it's it's sense. all kind of silly but, in a way, but but this, this is definitely stretching the silliness. Yeah, this, is, this is stretching my my believability because it's just it's it's like you have to he has to set it up so that uh i guess it's not necessarily one person but also why would it have to be like th- there's other sources of light to to look at the facts someone and, could have just had a flashlight like, yeah oh well luckily i've got this g- this gas lighter here we go boom and then it just explodes it's like just the amount of thought that ghostface would have to put into that for everyone to do exactly what he needs them to do in order for that to work. It's just way too yeah. like saw like for me. And so <laughs> it is, it's way too over it the is, top. It is super cartoonishly constructed. But it is fun. And <laughs> I'll admit, but it is fun. And, yeah. that, and, and, and that's it. When I, when I watched it as a kid, I remember this like again, once again for the first time, <laughs> like paying attention to the fact that someone was like constructing a set piece yeah. in this kind of way. Absolutely. Like I was really paying attention to this. So I, I remember watching that um, shortly after I watched the first two when I was like, I don't know. It was probably even before high school, honestly. Yeah. Um, and just being like, wow, uh, that shit is fucking crazy. But yes, looking back at it now, it's definitely very silly. Uh, <laughs> and 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 but honestly, I'll I'll take it over the bloodless deaths yeah. where someone just gets like thrown off a, a house or whatever it, like happens in the finale. And the um, thing is, too, it's like you see people get thrown off houses in the other one, but then they'd cut to the body like laying on the cement. And yeah, Sarah Michelle Giller is right. like she's b- bleeding out hardcore on the ground when you see that happen. And she actually did that stunt. Like you actually see the full stunt and everything. Oh, wow. It's that's cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, it just felt weird. And and yeah, you're right. It's just obvious that the execs were like, oh, we don't want to get in trouble. So just lower it a little bit. And it's that's just such a dumb move to do on your third installment of a horror franchise that's known for <laughs> its kills. Uh, not necessarily its kills, but it's it's the visceral impact that those kills give. So, yeah, yeah. It, it just dumb. 
just a dumb decision on the execs part for sure. Yeah. And all because they were just scared that they were going to get accused of like sparking someone to kill someone, which is something they've already been accused of doing regardless of what they've made anyway. Yeah. It's like they were already doing that after the first two screams. I'm pretty sure after the first two is when those like copycat killings started to happen. And so it's like, you've already been through it. It's not like it's going to happen. It's already happened. So what would be the reason at this point, those guys can still rent the first two movies. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just, stupid just executive brain yeah but hey uh it, it wouldn't be a uh <laughs> movie. weinstein production without uh without a little bit of uh, harvey scissor hands getting his way in oh, there that's yes. what he was nicknamed because he always used to do that shit to all of his fucking movies <laughs> um so but yeah the, the fact that even though the fact that this movie was definitely blunted and kind of harmed by that the fact that there is stuff that works really well in it like again the whole set piece where she's going through the house and she winds back up like back in scream one psychologically while she's like literally walking on a hollywood recreation of woodsboro or the whole even tragic backstory with her mom where she made like cheap exploitation films and was essentially, you know, at a Polanski party that Lance Henriksen was, was hosting and was abused there. Um, which results in a big finale that takes place in an old Hollywood house where the director is even named Roman. And there's like a big old screening room and there's a whole fucking like Scooby-Doo style secret passageways that they're constantly running in and out of and like props and posters and, you know, shit, hilarious lines like look like looks like stab threes back in production (laughs) (laughs) as the killer is starting killing people like around the house. And, um, there's even like a, a sad detail of like Emily Mortimer, who's playing the uh, actress who's playing Sydney in the stab films t- talking about how she's like, I did not fuck that pig Milton for a lead role just to die <laughs> yeah. um, right before she gets murdered <laughs> right away. Um, yeah. Gail two gets murdered. Watching Gail, watch Gail two get murdered is kind of like a surreal sequence. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, I love the line um, uh, when he's got the killers got, the knife to Milton himself, the producer. And he's like, I'll Roman, I'll give you final cut. And he's like, already have it. And then slices. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's the type of shit I was looking for throughout. That was unbelievable. Like, like, like that, that stuff's great. And also, yeah, the big twist, making it the director of the movie, like literally the killer is coming from behind the camera. Craven is the killer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great stuff. Um, and then, and and do, and doing this whole stupid melodramatic backstory where he's like Sydney's half brother, uh, who from from when she you know when Maureen was uh, you know making these films in Hollywood and you know yep. he he didn't get to have a, a nice family like she did and he actually showed Billy Loomis like the footage of her having an affair and you know used his directing and movie making power to get people to do what he wanted I'm a director Sid I direct yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that, that stuff, stuff is I all like. really ridiculous and silly, but it's not much more ridiculous than the second one. Honestly, no. I kind of enjoy it. I feel like I would enjoy it just more if, you know, uh, his, his final set piece was just as gruesome as the second one is. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just not, it's just not as, uh, mm. uh, it, it, impactful, even though like all of the, all of the satirical and thematic stuff about Hollywood is all there. Oh and yeah. It's all there like, done like- decently by Craven. It's, it's, it's just waiting for that, that next level to make you really feel it. <laughs> yeah. And I like all the, the stupid like uh, bullet uh, 
proof vest reveals that they do in this, this finale <laughs> oh too. God, They're just yeah. like, nope, didn't the, get like, me. like double bulletproof vest twist. <laughs> yeah, like, like no, it's funny because those things are, you know, they're designed obviously to stop bullets, but they're probably still going to like break a rib or two. That's what they're known to do because the yeah. impact's insane. But I love that these things are just become like an indestructible force. Like if you have it on, you're just yes. all good. And the way they implement it in this finale is very funny because they do a lot of back and forth like, nope, I had a vest on too. So that was fun. I also <laughs> like the uh when he's getting stabbed by Sid and she stabs him twice and um I actually wrote it down ironically before I even stabbed the three, line. right yeah and, and she's like uh we think because and then she reveals the vest and then um yeah. and then she's and then Roman's like we think alike and, and then she goes stab three right and stabs him for the final time it's yes. just so funny so dumb but I so great it. I love it love it love it so yeah, that that's the type. Oh, and then you also get a callback to Randy and their advice because, you know, this killer wasn't supposed to be like a uh, uh, someone that they had any connection to. It was supposed to be just like a wild card, someone that was unstoppable, an overpowering force. So and, and superhuman. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, but he was supposed to be superhuman, right? And so that turns into another kind of cool action beat where he still has the vest and Dewey doesn't know that. So he just keeps popping them over and over and over again in the chest until finally Sid until is they like, yell at the head, dude, yeah, head, and it just <laughs> caps him, and it's good. So all all that, like the final 10, 15 minutes, has a lot of fun satirical elements. I like the over the top melodramatic family stuff that they try to incorporate, just because it's so silly and ridiculous. Uh, I like, I kind of like the old Hollywood stuff that they throw in, even though well, I don't yeah, think well, it's well, as well, I was strong. Gonna say, and it's connected to the Hollywood stuff in the sense yes. that like obviously he w- he was born out of Maureen um her horrible experiences that she she had in Hollywood and also he's the director of Stab 3 so like right. the, all that stuff is like decently thought through and how it all connects to each other it's just like it, it definitely just doesn't have the same impact um no. when you're actually watching it you, you you do wonder how that same set piece would have played out if they had constructed something on the Woodsboro set and done like the full chase sequences awesome it would have it could have been as good as scream too yeah yeah i think so too (laughs) i also like uh the little wrap-up that dewey and gail get uh which is just a very dewey thing to say which is like uh she you know he asked her to marry him or whatever and she's like you're a brave man dewey riley and he's like i'm actually really scared right now (laughs) and i just thought (laughs) that that was a cute little dewey david arquette really fun actor i I wish we saw more of him too honestly yeah I don't know if which, by the way, the one the one thing I'll say about their relationship is that it does feel very genuine, even if they keep kind of running out of ways to kind of like write it for yeah, them. They have good chemistry. But um, yeah, Courtney Cox and Arquette are, are, are pretty fun. And um, the Patrick apparently. OK, go ahead. I, I was gonna say, apparently what I read was that um, they uh, met on the set of Scream 2. They were dating on the set of Scream they met on Scream One, dated on Scream Two, and on Scream Three, they were actually already married. Oh, they wow. were a couple, right? Yeah, I knew at one point Courtney um, Cox became Courtney Cox Arquette. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it was it was it was it was it was this was the first time she ever got that credit was for this movie, oh, which is kind of okay. cute. Yeah, that is cute. And then they get married in, at the <laughs> end too. So yeah, I think that's I, yeah, I like I, that. I do. It's it's adorable, but I like and, it. And, and, and and you get the moment with Sid that I think works of, uh, you really know, her good. being terrified and always locking the door. And then, you know, the wind pushing the door open while she's at home and actually just lets it, you know, 
for the first time in her life, like not caring, just like letting it go, going back and joining her friends while they watch a movie. That legitimately like gives me chills. I, I just think that it's a really well realized image for her character. And I guess I said this before, but it's just really, it's really, really good. I, I feel the relief and just that simplicity of like an unlocked door is no longer scary to her. It's just really good. I like that. Yeah. Um, I think that really works the too. Patch, I'll say this, this last thing, cause that, uh, um, I think yeah, we, we do got to wrap it, it up, up, I think. But <laughs> Patrick Dempsey, uh, I kind of I kind of like him in this. I mean, he's just kind of this random cop, but he has one weird moment where I think they were trying he's, to establish uh, like, that he was being flirty <laughs> with Sid and he gets real close. Yes. And they say like the the my life is the worst horror movie I've ever seen or something like that. And she, and and she goes, mine too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and the mine too, like the, the initial thought of that, I don't mind because we're in the movie that we're in, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. And I didn't see that being a thing until that moment when he says that line, the way he says it to her. So that just felt like out of left field and especially him showing up at the end, which I get that they were just trying to express like he didn't die. But it also kind of implies, I guess, that she's dating him now. And I was like, okay. I just, I, I didn't think I got, that the movie that was, was leading to that. was kind of introduced at the last minute there, but okay. Yeah, so I just kind of went, all right, whatever. But it, it did make me feel like it was kind of a, a weird, um, unnecessary thing to give her. But whatever, doesn't matter. Yeah, and they, they do try to set up this thing that I, I kind of like in theory. I don't know if it necessarily works in the performances, but I, I do like the... The in theory, the the thing that he the conversation he tries to have about her where it's like, you know, I'm a I'm a cop in Hollywood. I've seen terrible things and uh, I'm haunted and mm-hmm. I know what it's like to be watching a scary movie in your head alone. And like he's like yeah. literally they're trying to connect that, you know, he has the same sort of traumas that that she does. And they were definitely trying to imply that they were going to, you know connect in some way on that level but it's very funny that that is literally introduced in like the scene before the final set piece well that's the thing because like it doesn't that, that, that should have been up. that should have been introduced like so early on yeah apparently nev campbell was doing something else and could only do 20 days of shooting uh, so that's why it takes so long for her to get introduced into the movie i was curious because i was like why is this so focused on everybody but sid uh for the first like yeah. 45 minutes <laughs> it is weird um but but i i do like where it eventually leads so it is forgiven but yeah this one is like a honestly it's a lower three for me uh okay it's it's kind of a higher three for me honestly because i i think i think that this is like pretty i I think that this even if this just had way gorier kills i feel like i would be more forgiving of the things that i'm not forgiving of Mm -hmm. in this current existence that it has yeah Um, i can see that but 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 yeah, I'm I'm with you. Definitely in in the three territory. Not as strong as Scream Two, but like it, it, there's enough good stuff in there that makes me just kind of wish it was slightly better. Well, that's the thing. I just I feel like there, there's stuff in there that I like, but it just never comes to its full potential like the other two, especially the first one, of course. And um, mm-hmm. and I just found this one's silliness to be overpowering compared to the balance I think they find better in the second and first one. This one felt just a little too parody esque, uh, in, in certain regards at, at times. Um, and I just, gotcha. I miss kind of that, that balance that, that the first that, one that especially horror, gives. You know? Yeah. Cause it was yeah. like that, that, you know, you're constantly fighting yourself on whether you feel relief from the comedic, uh, uh, 
like like all the jokes that they're that they're doing. But then at the same time, the suspense sequences and the the horror sequences themselves are just purely that. So I, mm. I found in this third one, it gets a little bit messier in that regard. Like that explosion to me is purely funny. <laughs> like there's no. The suspense of it is interesting, but the feeling that I get is not horrifying. <laughs> like it, I, I am legitimately right, kind right. of laughing at it. And I just, I don't know. I don't think I need it to go that far in the satirical realm um, for my liking on these movies. So I think that's where the low three yeah. stems for me. But there's a lot of great moments. I like Jamie, Jamie's part. I do like all the Hollywood satirizing. I do like uh, mm-hmm. when the actors really start to get involved with the actual characters. I think that's a good idea. So there's plenty to like. Um, it's just not nearly as strong as the first two. So, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm basically um, with you there. I also think that this just suffers that, you know, the, the, the kills really don't have the same impact yeah. that either of the first two films have. I think that's target number one as like a big <laughs> issue for me. I think, yeah. I think that I would notice less of, well, cause that's just it. I feel like you would notice less of the silliness if you were, there were actual stuff that you were horrified by, but I just Definitely. feel like it, they, they really, really blunted it on the execs end by telling them to tone it down and agreeing with the MPAA to kind of cut this down. Um, and I, and I do think it was a little bit of a, of a mistake to make the lev- legacy characters feel as safe as they do. Yeah, they're too um, safe because it, it le- it, at least the second one killed Randy off in a way that was kind of unexpected, um, shocking. And so for for this to just not you know it even seem like you know it doesn't even really feel like they're in that much danger honestly no. like Gale or Dewey or anything like that it feels like all the actors who are playing them are which is a really cool idea and I like the fact that they're watching versions like knockoff B-movie yeah. versions of themselves all get murdered that stuff's really cool Definitely. but again you just wish it was more vicious um Mm-hmm. And also, we know that Williamson at one point really did want to kill them because the second Scream movie, part of the thing that got rewritten was that, like, apparently, like, the majority of them were going to die or something. Oh, wow. Like, it was, like, crazy. Like, I think they they at one point flirted with the idea of just making a second one and literally, like, killing everyone pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I, that's <laughs> um, what I expected from this so, one first time going in, but... Yeah, and and I don't know that I needed that because again I like the stuff with 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 Sid, but I feel like someone should have went down in a in a dramatic way that actually made you feel for the characters a yeah. uh, a little bit more, and and even the idea that Williamson also flirted of the idea of also having um, insane stab movie fans being the ones at one point who were going to be like kind of like a subplot who were going to be either a red herring or they were going to. Um, actually be the ones who were going to be the killers and stuff like that. So they, they had a lot of ideas that they were throwing around with the sequels in particular. And yeah, I don't know that all of them worked, but you know, I got to respect that this franchise because Craven is directing the entire thing. It has a level of consistency that even if it's not there in the writing, you know, is still there when you're watching a lot of the, uh, the actual sequences. I just wish this had some stronger sequences to it. Yeah. Um, because again, I, I really like a lot of the ideas of setting this on the stab three set, you know, having them walk around the recreation of the Woodsboro set, throwing in the, the, you know, the, the, the Polanski and Weinstein sicko party shit of Hollywood into that, especially in the cheap exploitation B movie days that her mom was a part of. And, 
having the director be the killer uh, and actually like directing all of these sequences that are that are taking place. Like it, it's still very, very playful in that way. And you can tell that Craven was involved in the writing process. Yeah. It's just it, it's very clear that, you know, he you know, he he was not given all the tools he needed to take it to the level it needed to go, um, even though you can see the ambition is there to go there. So, yeah, yeah. just a, just a, a solid to high three for me. But uh, yeah, is that it? Are we done? Can we it. wrap it up? <laughs> okay, we did three movies. It was a big one. I knew it was going to be big. Uh, but that's that's all, folks. Yep. That's, uh, that's Scream. That, that, that's a wrap on uh, Scream 1996, Scream 2 1997, and Scream 3 2000. Um, I don't think we missed yeah, a I feel thing. like we... <laughs> No, I'm sure people will yell at us because there's tons of amazing trivia Trivia. and writing and and, and history and all kinds of things out there. I'm sure there's some scenes or lines that we we could have brought up, but we don't have all the time in the world. We could have made this a six-hour episode if we really wanted to. Yes. Uh, hopefully the new scream is good. I got some doubts because Craven, I, again, I just said that the thing that makes this franchise so kind of incredible is that Craven was kind of behind all of them and we don't even have time to get into number four, but number four is surprisingly great. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, and it's to me, it's one. basically just, just, it's basically just as good as scream Two, And I, yeah. I, I, I almost wonder on rewatch if I'm going to even maybe even like it more. Cause it's, it's really, really strong and it does a lot of really great stuff coming out in the, in the 2010s. Yeah. Um, Ooh, media that they're focusing yeah, on. Yeah. Well, cause he, he had, he had an entire decade of horror to kind of respond to that. He was a part of bringing in. I mean, like literally there were torture porn filmmakers doing remakes of his Hills have eyes movies and stuff. So like, you know, Craven had, had more to get involved with in, in scream Four, and even more of a, <laughs> the, the the whole like online fan culture and like youtubers and shit like that yeah. and you know th- that kind of stuff gets involved in the fourth one and it sounds like it wouldn't work it sounds like it would be very old manny critiquing the next millennial generation or whatever but it's not but no craven really really nailed it on the directing level and that movie is really nasty so uh would recommend checking out scream 4 even though we don't have time to cover it <laughs> and uh hopefully scream 5 is not terrible yeah that is the main goal that is the vibes we're putting out into the world um yeah so i think that wraps it up for everything um this week we're going to be back in one week's time where we are going to be over on the uh uh bonus feed we are going to be going full-on grindhouse exploitation mode we are going to be talking about uh a collaboration between ernst uh ernst pickle i can't remember his name pickle (laughs) or something and ron ormond uh this is a collaboration between a magician turned exploitation filmmaker and a literal um psycho baptist church freak uh, getting together and making films where the the Baptist minister wrote the films and made one called Burning Hell, which is a movie uh, which is as described as literally just reenactments of hell trying to scare the shit out of you to let you know that hell is a real place that you're going to if you don't uh, stop sinning. And then if footmen tire you, what will horses do, which is his same depiction, but a reenactment of what would happen in America if communism uh, were to take over. 
and both of them are incredibly unhinged propaganda films by a psycho-religious man, um, but both of them are surprisingly effective as actual pieces of uh, grindhouse filmmaking, which is a, a delicious irony we will get into, especially in Burning Hell, because Burning Hell <laughs> uh, literally has a scene where it's like, the teens who go to the drive-ins and make out are sinners, and like <laughs> this is the, yeah. while, while operating in the exact kind of form um, that those kids would be watching. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and then in uh, two weeks time over on the main feed for all listeners, we have a fucking huge episode. Uh, we are going to be back with a, with a guest and we are going to be talking about one Martin Scorsese's the King of comedy, a personal favorite, I think for Jamie yes. and I, I believe. And we are going to be pairing it with the film perfect blue, which awesome. is a film. I don't think Jamie or I have seen yet, nope, but on the list forever. I, same with me. So either way, that's going to be uh, a, a, a really big episode, I imagine, because I know I think we both five came of comedy and I know a lot of people out there think Perfect Blue is an incredible film. So going to have a big talk with a special guest. And that's what you guys can expect on the main feed in two weeks. But yeah, that being said, that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.